1: Hello, Blunders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 97 of Real Blend, the podcast that brings Quentin Tarantino back to the Real Blend family. Uh, this is something really, really special that we were working on pretty much from the first time Quentin was on the show. Uh, and the story behind it is is relatively obs- uh, obscene and insane, and I can't believe that it happened the way that it happened. We will share all of that after... Uh, the full Quentin Tarantino interview if you guys want to stick around and listen to uh, four geeks talk about how they landed uh, one of the biggest interviews of their entire career but I don't want to delay the inevitable Uh, I don't want to delay what everybody is here for this is the extended director's cut uh, real blend interview with Quentin Tarantino Guys, we are here with a friend of the show, Quentin Tarantino. I feel like I can say that now. Uh, We were able to have Quentin on the show earlier to talk about his film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And you said something to us at the end of it, which is very, very sweet, um, a very industry thing to do. We should do this again sometime. And you hear that a lot. uh, But the fact that you are here right now, actually doing it again and being our first uh, recurring guest. Oh, great. We want to say (laughs) thank you very much for that. So we're uh, very excited to dive back into uh, your film uh, as going through the. Uh, the process right now, and then several other topics we're going to get to. And Kevin is going to start us off.
2: By the way, we're drinking Casamigos <laughs> margaritas again. Can, we, can we cheers on the yeah, actual cheers. audio? Cheers yeah, on the audio. There we go. It's nice. <laughs> um, Fred is going to edit that for us. Tradition now. No, but honestly, there's been so many scenes in this film that I would love to nerd out with you about. But one in particular is Richardson's reset of the shot around yeah. Timothy. Um, my favorite shot in the whole film is when they're doing Lancer. And DiCaprio flubs his lines, but the shot comes around Timothy Richardson brings us around. And the beauty of this moment is we don't know. We we're watching a fully edited scene. We actually don't see the production. We don't see the microphones. We don't see the camera person. We don't see the director. But in the sequence, when you reset the shot, we reset it mid scene. Can you talk about the decision of that and that shot being um, executed? Because it's one of my favorite shots in the whole film. What was the decision there?
3: Well, it was... uh, um I think the decision was uh, how I was going to do the, use the artifice of shooting Lancer on the, on the, uh, um, in in the film. And I think in the script, like um, there was another Lancer scene that uh, it's on the, uh, the Blu-ray, but it's not on, uh, not in the movie that we see the two brothers meet each other for the first time. Uh, Luke Perry's character and uh, Timothy Oliphant's character. And, um, and so I think in the script, the way I did it is the first three quarters of the scene, it's just like like you know what the hell is this western doing here all right you know so you're just kind of watching this western scene. and then in the last uh uh um uh last quarter of it, we kind of hop on the other side of the camera and so we, so we're uh, so the characters are in the foreground, but then the uh, crew is in the background. and so that was how I thought I was going to do it. and then I actually just thought. No, no, let's not do it that way. <laughs> let's just let's 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 do it as a cut piece completely
2: scored and everything scored
3: everything. And then when you yell cut whatever shot that is or any kind of intrusion that happens from off screen, whatever shot that is, that's the shot where we break where we, where we break the illusion. But up until that moment it's all like the finished piece.
1: Cuz in those moments mentally you're like I'm going to see a camera, you know? Yeah, or yeah, I'm going to yeah. see a boom mic or right, something yeah, uh-huh. that's a, that takes you out of it. So and the reset
3: indicates that. Yeah, us, and pa- yes, yeah.
1: exactly. And part of my whole thing
3: was uh you know I was trying to get as much Lancer in there as possible because that's like, you know, the closest thing to my third Western, all right? <laughs> yeah, and so the idea that I could sneak it through the back door and kind of get you know, get, uh, uh, get a whole episode of Lancer in there when no one's looking, you know, I'm not going to fuck that up. <laughs> and, um, um, and and I actually really had more of that I- uh, idea than it was like, then Leo came up with the idea that maybe he should screw up. And what, so really? he, yeah, because I actually wasn't in the script that he screwed up, screws up. And so he had this idea that he should screw up. And then when he has to do the scene later, now he's coming back from something. Well, okay. So he comes up with that idea. Like, I knew it was a great idea when he said it, but he's fucking up my Lancer scene. <laughs> hey, why don't you just concentrate on playing Caleb? All right, you know, uh, 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 um. But I knew it was a damn good idea. Okay, so then I kind of played the game. Okay, we'll we'll do it when you don't fuck up, and then we'll do it when you fuck up, and we'll see what happens. All right. So you and, say that to, just to ple- like like to say to him. Um, well, no, I knew it was a good idea. All right, so uh, there, you know, and so okay, well, I'll do it both ways. I want to have my full on Lancer scene, and I wanna and I and I want to explore this good idea. Now, the minute he did the take that you see in the movie. Okay, well this is obviously what we're doing. Right, right, right. All right. That take was just so fantastic. That also when the director's saying like no no, no keep going keep going. Like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, he knows that he he knows that at this point he's going to mess up. And so rather than having a director come flying in on a crane or a director mm-hmm. talking from off camera, it's Rick who breaks the take with his l- right. Oh. line and then you hear the direct, then you hear the script girl uh, give him the line and and then um uh, and then even the idea that when he has his tinter tantrum, the camera's not following him. You know, he comes out and he he steps out of the shot and like whirls around like like a buzzing bee. All right, and then eventually has to sit back down into the frame and 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 deal with it all. So once we had that, that was really great. And then like, oh well now we can okay, uh, and we're still not seeing the crew because they're just still an off-camera, there's still an off-camera perspective. Um So then I go well. Now, now what we have to do is now we have to actually we've actually just seen this big move, and then the big move works around Oliphant and lands, and then he steps into his position and then fucks up the line. (laughs) All right. So now we got to reset. All right, and so then the whole idea of uh, having seen this move that's kind of invisible because you're kind of trapped in the whole moment of the movie. Now we see how you
4: know,
3: and we actually put a squeak. All right, you know, on the track so it like you know because it's not meant to go that way. And so it's like okay, and now go. And so yeah, so that that's where all that came from. I was very very happy, but I was I really liked that 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 idea of of, uh, uh, showing the the media that Rick is shooting as, f- uh, as a finished product until something happens. All right. And, and it almost reminds you, yeah, oh, and that's it, right. I'm watching a movie. about Yeah. I'm yeah. Not watching, and yeah. that shot. All right. Is, uh, is, you know, is what they're doing at that given time. I mean, one of the things about it is I I think that like, um, uh, you're watching the film and I couldn't have been happier about the way this works. Well, believe me, if I, if I could have had more Lancer in there, I would have, but, uh, but as it is, um, When you see Johnny ride in the town, I think there is this thing for a lot of audience. What the fuck is this shit? You know? And then you're sitting there and you're watching it. And then even the whole thing when he has the showdown with business Bob, right? I think that's a really cool scene. But I think people are like, what the fuck is this shit? All right? All right. And then, uh, you know, and then when Leo comes out as Caleb, you kind of have a sense of it. And they oh shit, well, they're going further with it. All right. So he walks in the saloon and that kind of all starts playing out. Then they have their kind of scene at the bar. Then when they go and they sit down at the table, now you're kind of acclimated to the scene. Yeah. All right, you you kind of stop asking what is this shit. You're kind of you kind of caught up with it right. now. And I you, and one of the things as a director is you can actually kind of notice when the audience is listening, when they're not, when they're slightly checking you can out. You
2: Feel that in oh. the script or the no, 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 in the, in w-
3: watching it in a theater.
2: Okay. Oh, interesting. Watching it okay.
3: with with an audience, you can feel the audience when they're connected, when they're not, when they're listening. And I all of a sudden started really feeling once they sat down and he was like, so what are you doing around here? And uh, uh, Johnny Lancer starts telling his story like, oh, shit, the audience is they're listening now. They have now they're now acclimated to the scene. They want to hear what Johnny's answer is. Uh, 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 Rick is Caleb now officially. And so it literally is just as they start paying attention to what is being said and the drama of the scene that's when Rick blows it. <laughs>
2: That's a, it's not that reset shot. That's I could watch incredible. that on a loop for three hours. I would we watch that, that shot, shot reset.
5: On the way back. And then we were in the Uber
2: on the way back. Richardson's from, a uh, genius, man. So yeah. we had Richardson. That's my idea. No, but I mean the way it was executed, but it was Quentin's idea. So Quentin's a genius. Yes, yeah, we you. already thank know you 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 you're we, we already know Bob
3: Richardson. <laughs> Oscar Richardson III is a genius. Uh, my fucking shot.
1: <laughs> we had Richardson on the show, and I laid out that whole setup for him as a question, and and uh, I also wanted to get his thoughts as to why it went into it. And his resp- reply to me, which you'll probably totally understand and love, he said, what does that scene mean to you?
4: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what does that scene
2: mean to you?
1: And then I had to give him a whole long answer that he <laughs> loved. No point about
2: Richardson. <laughs> go. that was Quentin's idea, not
4: mine.
5: <laughs> uh, something we couldn't talk about before, which we can now, is yeah. the ending. And yeah. specifically the alternate history right. version of things. I'm curious, you whatever obviously you've done it before with, with Bastards. Yeah. How far beyond that moment because it's a fun sort of what if how far beyond that moment do you start questioning well what would have happened to Hollywood if things had worked out that way and I'm wondering specifically in the world of Roman Polanski the ripple effect yeah. that that moment would have
3: had on all of their lives had that been the case well that well, uh, um it would have you know God, it it would have been intense I mean how I can't even begin to venture how culturally it, it it would have changed because uh, I mean, ever since my movie came out, everyone was quoting the Joan Didion line, you know, like, like crazy. Um, but there was an aspect from everybody. I know that, you know, the, uh, there was this uh, uh, Topanga Canyon entertainment class hippie ethos that really did exist where, you know, the doors were open, come on in. I mean, you know, uh, uh, if you're out, drinking and having a good time and you want to, uh, get together somewhere. Oh, you know, you could go into, uh, you could just go to, uh, so-and-so's house off of Beachwood and go into their guest house and continue with partying. You don't even need to get their permission. And you just could kind of do that. All right. People can literally exist on, you know, couches and, and uh, couch surfing and, uh, and just uh, crash pads and stuff, and like you know, uh, all that just went away. So I can't even begin to venture a, a guess of uh, uh, how the, like I said, the you know the the, uh, the entertainment class hippie ethos. How that if that uh, if that didn't just get blown away by a bad wind, what that would do. But I can venture that, like well. Rome Plansky would probably have done a a day of the dolphin. That's what he was working on at the time. That's why he wasn't even in town. He was in London working on, uh, working on a script stuff for day of the dolphin. Um, So I think, uh, uh, you know, so that would have happened. And, you know, and I'd be, be, it would really be interesting to see where, uh, where Sharon went with, with her career. Now, Warren Beatty told me that, uh, Sharon was, was legitimately considered for Bonnie, in Bonnie yeah. and Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. really no, kidding. Yeah. He told me that he said that it was like, no, she was a, she was a genuine, uh, she was one of our, uh, the three people that we, we, we absolutely considered. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That would have been amazing. And, you know, and, and, uh, so the thing is like she, she, she played fairly, f- uh, f- uh, fliv- uh, either flivorous. Uh, fliv- uh, fliv- uh, fliv- uh, fliv- uh, is frivolous. Fri- yeah, your word. Right. All right. Uh, I think that's the word. Roles. Or even when they weren't, the movie was frivolous. All right. Oh, like right. Uh, the, 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 the Valley of the Dolls. Um, But the people who, uh, but the people around her who were part of her circle, all right, really liked, uh, uh, really had a lot of faith in her. Like I said, Warren Beatty was part of the circle. He considered her for Bonnie, and Roman would have cast her as Rosemary. Oh, if he could have. All right, he said. You know, he said that. uh, I, I, I can't imagine anybody but Mia Farrow playing the role. All right, but, um, but he said that you know, uh, he actually would have loved to have cast uh, Sharon as um, Rosemary. But he kept waiting for the Paramount producers to bring it up. And when they didn't bring it up, he thought it would be unprofessional of him to bring it up. But if they had of, he would have
1: gone right down that road. Wow. When wow. You bring up um, characters that that could be viewed as frivolous. There are none in this film. Like everybody who has even a scene, yeah. it's important to them. And one that people have really attached to is Julia Butters. Yes, you know,
3: and for right, right, rightfully so. <laughs>
1: for so many great reasons. It's, it's almost like a, it's a little oasis for Rick, you know, yeah, in the yeah. middle of this, this storm, but there's a, the line that she gives that you use to end one of your trailers. Yeah. That was the best acting I've ever seen, you know, in my yeah, entire yeah. life. She leans over and whispers it to him. <laughs> if you were able to lean over and whisper that to one of your actors at any given point on a set from a film that you've done before, there were just in that moment where they so captured you, that you said, that's the best acting I have ever seen in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Who would you say that to?
3: Well, gosh, um, look, I wouldn't be able to break it down between, oh, well, this one would be number two and this one would be number one sure. and that one would be number three. You know what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go with the first thing that came to my mind okay. when you told that story. So that's not saying this is the best, but it's the first one that came to my mind Sure, when I had a, like, I kind of had a moment like that. Um, and even to qualify that just a little bit, because it's like, like, I'm probably always going to feel that way when I've written a really good book piece of dialogue or a really good monologue or something and then somebody comes and delivers it to a fairly well so I'm probably always feeling that when Sam Jackson does one of my monologues in the right way or Christoph Waltz does one of my monologues in the right way but the moment that I had that kind of feeling was uh during a take on Django Unchained and it was with Leo and it was during a take on Django Unchained at the dinner table scene (laughs) <laughs> and it was, no it wasn't no it wasn't the glass all right uh, even though that was impressive in its own right um it's he was talking about uh his father i i, I think it was the speech where he talks about uh his father and the uh, the slave that used to shave him all the mm-hmm. time and he I slit his throat yeah or, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah. yeah and um and so anyway I had a very weird relationship with the, uh, the character he played, Calvin Candy, because, um, all my villains, every single villain that I've ever created, I always kind of had sympathy for them. I always liked them to some degree or another. And, uh, um, you know, even Hans Landa, I, I could see his point of view and I, 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 I liked the guy. All right. Uh, uh, it was bad, but I got it. Christoph makes him likable. And he does make him likable.
2: Comical, weirdly yeah. enough. Yeah. yeah.
3: And, uh, and it's even that whole kind of thing in the stories where it's like, you don't want Londa to triumph at the end, mm. but you kind of want Londa to figure out what the bastards are doing. Because if he did de- one, that'll, that'll build up to how impressive that I've made the character, but also it'll be a much more exciting movie if he figures out what's going on sure. and how the fuck are they going to get her out of this? Right, right. All right. You know, it's are watching a movie. Um. But Calvin Candy was different from the rest of them. I kind of detested the character. I really, really hated him. And I, it was weird to, like, write a character that I hated and and kind of feel that way about the character. And so, anyway, so Leo was, uh, uh, and because of that, I actually thought he was a substandard character. I actually, and when Leo was really into it, I thought I was kind of buffaloing him a little bit. I thought, this character is not as good as he thinks it is. Um Imagine the yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to set him straight. <laughs> but I, uh, but I, I'm thinking uh, he ain't all that. But, all but right. to you it was
1: Django's movie? It what? was to you to you it was Django's movie.
3: Well it, no, it was just a fact that I like, mean to me to me he was without ambiguity. Exactly. And so that made him a lesser character gotcha. Um But we did a really good job of 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 filling in everything and um and Leo brought ambiguity to the piece. And where I had that moment, and I actually said it out loud on the, in front of the whole crew, where it was like, uh, it was one of, just one of, one of the many takes that Leo did, uh, talking about his father, talking about growing up at the plantation. And all of a sudden, I saw Calvin in a different way than I ever had before. Leo was able to bring me inside of his world and to see him, see him as a person in a way that I had never really looked at him before. I would just been able to see the gargoyle. And, um, and then when the take was over and I said in front of the whole crew, I go, Leo, man, that was fucking amazing. Um, you've made me understand Calvin in a way that I have never understood him before. And you made me ask a question, can you blame a Borgia for being a Borgia? Now, actually, yeah, you can blame a Borgia for being a Borgia, but now you can understand a Borgia a little bit more. And it's not so easy to throw off everything you've ever known and everything you've ever been taught. All right. People do it and people did it even back then. All right, but it's not the easiest thing in the world. And frankly, did this kid ever have a chance? That's amazing. You know, and that was not a perspective that I had going into the project.
2: Did you go up to Leo and tell him that you I told it in front of the whole crew. That's amazing. So when you you did it on Hollywood and Julia says it to- DiCaprio? Did DiCaprio mm-hmm. remember that moment from Django? I don't think so. I think he was. I mean, he
3: liked that moment and everything, but it wasn't a tearful moment. He was just uh, happy that I was so yeah. happy and that I applauded him in front of the entire oh, crew. He didn't say uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, I think he said that to himself a couple of times. Where would you put the f word? So it's Rick fucking Dalton. Yeah. Would it be Leo fucking oh, DiCaprio. De fucking DiCaprio. DiCaprio. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: I'm available for hire. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I always appreciated your. As I grew up with them, I had Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs posters in my room. I think my favorite line ever is, Mr. White, you will shoot me in a dream. You better wake up and apologize, which is a Muhammad Ali reference. Yes, that it really. is. Absolutely. Um, which is, I always found that you have been a big proponent of the cinematic experience, the theater experience. And with Hateful Eight, bringing back these 70 millimeter projectors, I went and saw Hateful Eight in the Roadshow. It was one of the greatest experiences I ever had in a movie theater. I saw this twice in 35, once in 70. Um, there's something about film that I don't know that I could ever explain in words why it feels so magical, but it does. Yeah. We had Roger Deakins in the show recently, um, who's been actively shooting very digitally for a long time Great now. So ca-
1: Can we pause on your name drop just for a second?
2: It is a name drop. We had him <laughs> on and we're talking about digital versus film. Sicario, Skyfall, even now 1917, Mendez's film all shot digitally. When I spoke to you at Django, we talked about the idea of digital versus film. And you said something along the lines of like, if you shoot digitally, you go to the theater, it's like watching TV at home, something yeah. along those lines, yeah, yeah, not, yeah. not to take you out of context. Um, where Do you feel the technology has gotten to a point now where you can make it look like film? And when you talk to someone like a Roger Deakins, who is very adamant about digital being able to look like film if done correctly, what are your thoughts on that? Because for me... I'm a film guy. I know you're a film guy. Yeah. Richardson shoots on film, obviously. So what are your thoughts on someone like a Deakins, who is one of the greatest cinematographers ever, saying that digital can achieve that look? And do you think we've gotten to a point where we can?
3: He doesn't want to spend the time lighting. <laughs> it's that fucking simple.
2: Mm. Is that really it? Yeah, of course
3: it is. That's it. that's that's what it is. He doesn't want to spend the time lighting. All right? What you see is what you get. All right? He looks at the monitor. There's, there's no... Five processes that he's going to have to go to Mm. all right he's not going to work through for uh, through a degrading process that what's actually playing at the theaters uh that that he has to know that oh i gotta get this so four steps down the line when they see it in a movie at a movie theater it's going to look like that Mm. all right he looks at it in in the monitor on the day that's it what you see is what you get all right and then you know yeah of course he can shoot um uh, 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 night scenes, uh, in, uh, Sicario. yeah, in yeah. Sicario or world war one. All right. And, uh, and uh, he doesn't have four trucks. All right? right. Full of uh, lighting equipment, uh, uh, just trying to get an image. Yeah. It's just, it, it's easier for him. It's easier for him. He can, you know, he can, uh, uh, um, you know, and he does, you know, he doesn't have to do that much on the day. All right. There's a lot of stuff he can do later, that will take care of a lot of the things. The work is
2: after, not during.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, and, you know, um, you know, I like cinematography where it's, uh, no, what you see is what you get is what you do on the day. Now you can, you can do a bleach print and there's all kinds of little things you can do, but if it's, if if it's not captured... <laughs> If it's not captured on the day, then you you didn't capture it. You didn't do it. Now there is a whole lot of even shooting on film where people window all kinds of stuff. Like they do a they a, 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 they do an interpositive, and then they can window everything. And to to that degree, it's like you know before you could watch a movie and think, hey, that movie has really good. Cinematography. Well, you have no
4: idea if it right.
3: actually has a good cinematographer or not now. I mean, mm. the star, all right, could have just been windowing the entire process and they just got an image so they weren't fucking around on the day of shooting mm. and then planning on doing all these windows when it came. Okay, well, let's bring the sky out a little bit more here. Let's bring the black out. Give me a little bit more black over there. You know, that's, you know, it's all a paint box set. Mm. You know, and that's even when it's done on film. Right. All right, when it's on digital, forget about it. You can do literally- anything you want, but I guess where I'm coming from is in a world where you can do anything, nothing means anything. Mm. <laughs> that's a great, you know. So what do you
2: ultimately feel about digital and film in the sense of, I know you still probably feel the same way and I do as well, but do you think we're getting to a point where digital can ever achieve that look officially? Like, like can you look at Sicario? Well here's, well,
3: here's my, okay. I mean, but here's my point of what you were talking about, even when, and I don't think I'm I don't think I'm throwing Deacons under the bus. No, no. I think uh, I, 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 I would, I, I, you know, let him say I'm wrong about why he's coming from where he's coming from. I think it is that case. But one of the, but the key to what the way you pose the question is, oh, we can make digital look like film. We can do it. We can have an, a thing that looks like film. Well, well, film looks like film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. All yeah. right. You, you, you know, it, it, it's. Uh, um, if you were going to create something that could not be done on film, and I'm not talking about just the hard work of it being done on film, but if there was this, if there was this other format, all right, that create a look that just is film is incapable of doing, well, that would be something. Yeah. That would, that would be something. That would be legit as far as I'm concerned, but you know, uh, uh, but, you know, trying to add, you know, take a digital, tr- trying to take digital and then add a, 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 a shutter effect or or uh, a, or grain or speckling or anything yeah. like that. Um, what the fuck are you doing, man? All right. Just shoot on film. Just do it. Shoot on <laughs> on this, film. this tofu tastes just like steak. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'll, I'll take yeah, a steak. It's yeah. A, yeah. Yeah. It's a, okay. <laughs> it's, it's a veggie burger. Yeah. All right. right. I've had good veggie burgers. Yeah. Right. You know, one of
5: the things I love most about this movie and there are a lot of things, trust me. As a 31-year-old guy, you let me feel like what Hollywood felt like in 1969. Like I like for two and a half hours, I felt like that's what I missed. Sucks that I missed it, but I got to, but I got to experience that for two and a half hours. If there's a kid out there right now who's gonna be a future filmmaker, and in fifty years he wants to make a movie about what Hollywood was like, thank you, in twenty nineteen. Mm-hmm. What are some aspects of this business today that really are gonna stand out and that he's gonna focus on when he tells the story of Hollywood in fifty years.
3: Wow, gosh, I that that'll be interesting, you know. Um I think it's a situation where it's like, you know we have to be aware enough to know that we really don't know what they're gonna be talking about yeah. 40 years or, or or 50 years because we're in the middle of it. I don't think uh um if you talk talk to any t- 10 uh, uh luminary filmmakers from 1969 uh they would have the take that I had on once upon a time in hollywood because they would just be too into it I mean whether it's uh 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 I mean I, just, giving you an this is a little off topic but uh, only vaguely um you know, I think one of the closest things that we could have actually seen possibly is apparently Sam Peckinpah really wanted to to do the movie adaptation of Joan Didion's Play It as a Lace. Wow.
1: Whoa. that's
3: awesome. And like the studio was like, I fucking forget. Wait, was it. this
2: before or after Wild Bunch?
3: Uh, it was after Wild Bunch. Yeah. You know, uh-huh. I think the book came out like within a, the next year or okay. something like that. And so I think they made their the movie version with Frank Perry like somewhere around 73 or 72 and uh but Peck and wanted it and they go don't be ridiculous. <laughs> and so like you know they didn't even consider him for it. But I I there's an aspect to my movie that is a little bit oh this this is the closest we're ever going to get to the Peck and play played as yeah. it lays. Um but I mean I I would I would uh um part of the reason we don't know is we don't know how things are going to play out. I mean one of the things that the only thing that I do know is I know I don't know what things are going to be like seven years from now. Okay, I don't I don't and nobody at this table does. I don't think anybody in the did you industry have said that does. in the nineties if i you this yeah, question? Yeah, cool. right? I, I never wouldn't yeah. have said that. I wouldn't said that in the nineties, and I would have been a little wrong. But I mean, yeah. but I mean, I mean, it could really, really, really be different. Like we didn't see the record album going away yeah. as an art yeah. form. We didn't see uh, 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 literary heroes. Going the way of the dodo bird, no. all right? You know, mm. uh, uh, streaming. W- yeah, exactly. We didn't see. <laughs> yeah, we 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 didn't see a lot of these things happen until until they happened. Yeah, until they were literally in the rearview mirror. Um, and and so uh, you know, we're struggling. We're we're struggling. We're fighting. We're we're contemplating how, what movies are going to be now. But I think in seven years we'll know. But what I know is we don't know now. I'm going to follow up in seven years. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, I love the fact we, we always sort of take a step back and look at the big macro picture of uh, the year in film, essentially. And it's been one of
2: the best years of film I've seen in a long time. It's been really I impressive. Love this year. Yeah. Personally,
1: I'm thrilled that you let this movie come out in July. Um, yeah, me too. Because me too. right now there's a, such a glut of really good films that are hitting at the same time. And so in a given week, we might have to process, you know, Richard Jewell, 1917, Little Women, all these films that are- Which we did
2: recently. (laughs) Yeah, I mean,
1: and it's almost unfair to the films. And so I know you went through that with Hateful Eight, Mm -hmm. where you entered it into a really crowded marketplace. And we're also going for theatrical, you know, experience as part of that and fought with that. So I'm just curious how much that factored into your decision to let this breathe uh, in July, even though people who might think that like- Oh, we want awards chances that always wants to go out later in the year, you know, but you were like, fuck it, I'm going to go in July. Uh,
3: well, I, th- I think that's, uh, um, I've done that like twice before in this decade All right, in the case of Django and in the case of, uh, the hateful a, where we both in both movies, we open them up on Christmas and, uh, and uh, 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 and Django was really re- well rewarded for that, both box office wise. And then we did, uh, and we got, uh, 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 and you know, I won a screenplay Oscar for it, and right. Christoph Waltz uh, won Best Supporting Actor Oscar for it. That was that ended up being really, really good strategy for us. Mm-hmm. But it was a drag that you know it's just poured into the marketplace at the last second. The conversation's already has has. Long since begun, right, right, right. You know, and um, and uh, and Hateful Eight. Even though uh, you know, uh, Enio won the Oscar for uh, Hateful Eight, I was a little disappointed by how, uh, what what happened with us there. All right, um, uh, but I, at the same time, I kind of understood it. Now, the situation, though, is looking back on both Pulp and uh, Inglorious Bastards, there was a big benefit from the film rather than just this rush, everything's got to come out in the last month. There was a big benefit about the fact that the films had played and had done well. They were actually known as successes and that people see it, saw it not in a mad rush. A lot of people saw it at the theaters when it came out and, and maybe they've even seen it a couple times, right. you know, uh, twice or three times maybe. And uh, in the case of those two and, uh, uh, and so, uh, you know, they weren't just waiting for the screener. Right, right. I mean, most of them had had a theatrical experience, and not a crushed one, not a uh, uh, not a pressured one. Uh, and they, you know, and not only that, like uh, the film had come out early enough that it's like they have memories of it. Their 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 neighbors saw it. Their dentist saw it, Right. right. Uh, their, uh, their, their daughter saw it, their daughter's boyfriend saw it. And so there was like, li- they literally had had conversations. The movie was alive and living. And so I don't think the way it's existed, I, g- I guess from the, uh, the first decade of the 21st century where uh, all the uh, um, movies are, uh, that are real Oscar contenders are backlogged right. till uh, the last two months. Of the process, I don't think that's the way it is anymore. They're always going to be the ones that, that, that are coming in there, but I don't think that's the I don't think that's the best strategy right. nowadays. I actually think the best strategy is uh, opening your movie soon enough, so it's not part of that crunch. Right. Find yourself. Don't let the tail wag the dog as far as your Oscar chances are concerned. Pick the best date for your movie. Let it do good on its own. Let people come and go see it. And then let it take on. Look, yeah, maybe I wouldn't, uh, uh, if I was going for Oscars, maybe I wouldn't open a movie in February or wouldn't
1: open it in March. But you should be able to do that. I'm curious, (laughs) how come you have never participated in like the Toronto Telluride? Or have you? Have, well, I did with
3: Pulp Fiction. I did with Pulp, I did with both with Pulp Fiction and with uh, um uh Reservoir Dogs. I okay. won the whole film festival circuit. Okay. Uh with that. Uh you know, the way it uh, uh but the way it worked out for all the other ones, it just uh um I just kinda didn't need to. Okay. Uh, we opened a con or we or we just were literally making it in time to make a release date. Okay. I mean, literally, like that was that was our date was
2: our release date, and we had to kill ourselves to get it done in
1: time. Because yeah. those are other scenarios where it's like and, and you're Jake, seeing so many movies in a short amount of time. Yeah.
2: Jake does have a follow-up to the Oscar question, but since you mentioned the release, it got me thinking about something. The Blu-ray is coming out almost at a perfect time. Yeah, right. <laughs> is perfect, that yeah. is that designed to come out in December to bring it back to people's memories? Not it, not that it left, but does yeah, yeah. it does, does that part of the design well, it's, help? It's,
3: well, it's the right kind of synergy. Right. Mm. All right, and it's also one of those. I mean, there. You know, we we still have in theatrical engagements going on. That's on wow. a once upon a time so in uh, in Hollywood. Um, you know, at the oh, well, easy easy enough at the New Beverly. I own the damn place. <laughs> but the thing is, we're not showing to like uh, uh, an audience of thirty people uh, when we show on the weekends, and it fucking does great. That's I mean, great. really, does this? You know, months later. Um. Uh. Uh. uh but then the the the, uh, the Blu-ray coming out. It's the right time, but it's also just, but again, I think it just suggests that we open the movie at the right time. Mm. So now this is the right time for the, for the Blu-ray and then the synergy is fucking perfect. (laughs) All right. So it's not just a a knock it out, a, a screener that we send to the Academy members, you can get the real damn thing, yeah. all right? And- uh, with, uh, Yeah, because we got the DVD screener, and I went, I can't do this. Shout out to Shannon
2: McIntosh, who's yeah, he, in this room, McIntosh, <laughs> I, I, we're talking about this once upon a time in Hollywood Blu-ray, it's one of the coolest things, and you're, Shannon's very involved in making these shows, an amazing job, and you want to mention the mad thing real quick, yeah. this is really cool.
3: Yeah, I'm well- yo, No, no, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things is, uh, uh, so uh, uh, one of the things on the uh, uh, the Blu-ray is Which we're we holding a, right now. I'm, I'm touching right now. I'm fondling right now is, uh, 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 an issue of mad magazine that has a, a takeoff on uh, the show. Bounty law called lousy law, right? uh, but it's our second takeoff on it because what happened was, so I had that, uh, uh, when you saw Rick's house, like a lot of the old stars of the day of that day, you go to their house uh, I, I, it's always a line that cracked me up. It was uh, Robert Mitchum talking about going going to Kurt Douglas's house. He goes, have you been to Kurt Douglas' house before? You're in a fucking Kurt Douglas museum.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I can see him saying that. I really can see him
3: saying that. <laughs> so I figured Rick's house would be like a Rick Dalton museum. So it would be like the one sheets for his movies and then uh, and highlights from his uh, uh, career where it's like, you know, he was on the... Uh, Bounty Law was on the cover of, uh, um, uh, a uh, TV guide twice, you know, once him, once a, a Jack Davis style caricature. So both of those TV guides are on the wall. Then like his like, uh, uh, LA Times Sunday calendar TV guide cover is on the wall. And then I had that mad magazine did a takeoff on Bounty Law.
4: Right.
3: And, um. So we got in touch with uh, 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 Tom Richmond, who's like one of the really great illustrators at Mad Magazine. And he does the Jack Davis style. So that's kind of the thing I wanted. I wanted to be as if Jack Davis drew it. And uh, so we asked Mad, can we uh, 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 do a a Mad Magazine cover and put it as a prop in the movie? And they go, yeah, sure. And um, so uh, we get Tom and I designed the cover. Not, not this one. one, this, is one this is a different, this is a new one, the, the yeah. one in the movie, the one in the movie. So I designed the cover. Okay. This is what I want. And you know, uh, Alfred E. Newman is on the wanted poster and he's got a, he's picking his nose <laughs> right, right up to the knuckle. All right. And, and Rick is, and J.K. Hill's looking, going, <laughs> and, uh, and then, and the, uh, and that, and I even came up with the idea that, okay. And the, and the, and the parody title instead of bounty law would be lousy law. <laughs> So Tom does it and it's terrific. And we have it. And, uh, I even have the original artwork. Thank, thank for you. And then, uh, uh, and we put the cover on the, uh, on the wall. So anyway, it looks so fucking cool that we go to mad magazine and they go, look, this looks really great. And look at it with your logo and everything. Um, why don't we do this for the real Mad Magazine? Now, like I can't, I got a big surprise ending, so I can't like let you guys do Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I could bring your guys over and we could we shot a lot more for the Bounty Law episode than we ever show in the movie. We could show you everything we did, and then maybe you could do a takeoff on Bounty Law, and then one it would be fun because okay, you're making fun of Bounty Law a little bit, that would be great, but also you get a chance to just. Parody, 50s television westerns in general. Well, they ended up loving the idea. So they sent a couple guys over to the editing room. We showed them everything we had. And then they went off and then they uh, um, uh, uh, wrote a whole lousy law uh, parody with Rick. And then they took that cover and they put it on their magazine. That was the cover of their magazine. That ended up being the last original issue of mad magazine oh that's and that's, no, yeah. no, that's no no the that's the, the one in the, that's movie. the one we created yeah, the, the one, one that the the was released
2: with wow. the whole you know the one in the movie is the last one ever created. yeah yeah
3: was the last one i mean i think from I, they're still figuring out what they're gonna do i think uh, but i think it's gonna be a lot of reprints from exactly. here on in right Ooh. all right and so the last official where everything was original was that issue so to sum up
2: I, uh, not Robert Richardson, design the cover Richardson just of the me.
3: last issue of Mad Magazine oh my gosh. ever. I feel like you've been waiting Fucking to say take that. Take that, Judd Apatow. <laughs> oh. Oh. You wish you could have written for Mad Magazine. Uh.
2: Fuck
4: you, motherfucker.
2: <laughs> Do what I did. All I'm hearing in my head now is, Lousy Law, starring <laughs> Flake Cahill. That's it. That's, that's, all, that's, that's what, it is. what
1: I'm hearing. Flake Cahill. Flake yeah, why, Cahill. Take the Palm d'Or. <laughs> <laughs> take the Oscars. It doesn't matter. Flake Cahill. Mad Magazine. So, hold
3: off the Mad Magazine. That's, that's amazing. amazing. No, I, yeah. I, that's amazing. I, Judd Apatow is getting... Hemorrhoids right now, just <laughs> hearing that story because he could never hope to top it.
2: That's and on the amazing. Blu-ray, you're going to get another version of the Mad Magazine, and a new, really is, cool. a new
3: issue of *Lousy Love*. Very cool.
2: Uh, Circling back to to the Oscar that we were talking about. Uh, if you can't
5: tell, you're sitting at a table full of people who champion you and champion your work so much so that your your victories are our victories and your losses are our losses. Oh, thank you. And the reason I say that is because we all believe that you're one of the greatest directors that's ever existed in the history of film. So it. Bugs me to no end that you have yet to win a best director or best picture Oscar. If you are sticking to this 10 film stretch, which you say, that means you've got two shots left. Yeah, yeah, right on. How bad, like does it does it do you want it bad, or is it something you just don't really like? You got two for for writing, so it doesn't bother you as much.
3: Well, it, it doesn't. Bother me. I my career has been so amazing that have done okay. To, yeah, yeah. yeah. You've done okay. My career and my life has been so amazing that to be bothered by uh not having a trophy or something would be you know uh, um yeah. It probably bothers me more than it bothers you. Well, you know, like, like, it would be nice. It would definitely it would it, it would definitely be nice. Uh um and you know uh we'll see what happens, all right? I uh I think I got a good shot at it though yeah. this year. Do you feel uh,
5: this year is, is- Different going into it?
3: Uh, Yeah, I do, actually. I, I, I do. Uh, what is that different feeling? Well, that's well, that's a good question. I was actually just contemplating it when I said that. All right. You know, it's like, uh, um, um I wasn't bummed about not winning for Pulp Fiction because there was part of, like, it would have been, I won the screenplay. Um, but one, that was kind of the role back then. It was like the cool hit movie won best screenplay and then the more Oscar movie that you thought was going to win the Oscar was the one that got director and got best picture.
1: Can I pause you for one Forrest second? Yeah, uh-huh. That is the reason I hate Forrest Gump as much as I do. <laughs>
4: <laughs> we haven't just, he actively I hates that I legitimately hate
1: that movie. And and watching that movie triumph that year
4: yeah,
1: uh-huh. over, to me, four legitimately... Much better
2: film. <laughs> much better film. Shawshank was that year yeah, too.
1: exactly. Quiz yeah. Show is that year. Four yeah. Weddings and a Funeral is that year. And of course. Well, that's why doesn't Matt Damon say that the
2: Oscars should be held 10 years after the movie comes out? That way you can gauge how, how, the impact right. that film had because Pulp Fiction clearly s- stood the
1: test of but, time. But that's part of the reason why. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, continue. Yeah,
2: I, I get <laughs> it. Like, I get it. <laughs> I
3: mean, but, you know, look, there is also another reality where it was uh, – um, um, it probably wouldn't have been the best thing for me to win best director and best picture with my second movie at that young of age yeah. you know uh, uh um i won best screenplay and and i i was i was i was very happy um but uh i mean it was It wasn't difficult, but it was a thing to even overcome Pulp Fiction and move on with the career as it was. If it even had that attached to it. I mean, I don't think I would be feeling that now. All right, now Pulp Fiction would just be among the best picture winners and that would be what it is. But, you know, but for the six years that happened after that, I, I think it was probably good that I didn't have that kind of albatross, you know, around my neck. That something to even just... Make *Pulp Fiction* even a harder thing to to, to get past. Uh, in the case of *Inglorious Bastards*, it was uh, uh, we had a shot, but we all knew Catherine was going to win for uh, the Hurt Locker. Yeah. So it was just kind of it just kind of was the way it was. Now in that instance, I was totally pissed that I won best uh, that I lost uh, original screenplay to Mark Bull. All right. Now, I, I, and I, I like Mark and we were actually, and we, we were t- doing a lot of shit talking with each <laughs> other through the entire, in the entire process. I just think my script was better. All right. You know. Uh,
2: um, it was. The opening yeah, scene gonna, along.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I thought. All right. You know, so, uh, uh, you know, so, uh, so that's where I felt I got robbed. All right. Um, and, and, uh, and then it, when it came back around for uh, uh, Django, and he was nominated again for uh, Zero Dark Thirty. All right, I bump into him uh, uh, in the lobby of, the, of uh, the Kodak, and I go, motherfucker, you're not even getting out of your seat this time. <laughs> <laughs> if you get out of your seat... You better be taking a piss. Because <laughs> you ain't getting at. I am not competing against anybody else here except you. I'm going to shut your fucking candy store down tonight. How is that not your speech? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Not only that, fucking Mark Bowl, all right? Even- Poor uh, uh, Mark Bowl. And In Inglorious Bastards- even did this whole fucking thing, all right? Well, because you know, we go to a zillion, uh, we go to a zillion award shows before Bast- before the Academy, yeah. So it's like you know, so at least six different things. So I mean, so we're getting we get along. He's a great guy, all right. So and then Catherine's really cool, you know. So we'd end up at the parties of these things, and we'd be like uh, ha- having cocktails together and drinking and talking about stuff. And so then Mark goes. Okay, man, you know, it's between you and me. So I think we make a deal, man. I think we make a pact. We make a pact, all right? So whoever wins, when you go up there, you talk about the other one. <laughs> you know, when you win, you go up there, and then I give it to you. And then when you win, you go up there, and you also you give it to me, because it's about us, all right? And I think that's how, that's, that's how it's got to be, man. I go, okay. He didn't say jack fucking shit when he won. I was like, "What the fuck about?"
4: Seven, he thought you were gonna seven win. Seven different
3: parties. Yeah, yeah. Seven different parties. That's what you said we should do. It was your fucking idea. Yeah, I and know. You man. would have done it for him. I would have done it for him. I, I, I know. I'm a man of my word.
2: All right, Which you is know why you're sitting right here yeah. right now.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. I'm not really mad at that. I, mean, I, I think he actually just got. Uh, I, I, you, you can say that you want to say a, a ton of shit when you actually win an Oscar and you get up there, everything goes out of your head. So, I, what is I, that I, moment like? I think we,
5: we, we will. I've never. I'm never going to experience it. What, what is that? Know. What is that moment like when they call your name?
3: Well, it's one of those weird things where it's like, look, you want to win. <laughs> But at the moment, just before they call your name, you kind of don't want to win because <laughs> you don't want to have to go up there. <laughs> I mean, I'm not talking about—I'm only talking about that 10 seconds, yeah, yeah. all right, just before they call your name. you kind of like, ah, that means I got to go up there. Who presented yours? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, I do, as a matter of fact. Uh, it was uh, for Pulp Fiction— it was Anthony Hopkins. Wow. Oh. And for Django Unchained, it was Dustin Hoffman and Charlize Theron. Oh my God. Ah, you mentioned Hopkins.
2: So going off Jake's question now, now i come curious, once the uh, once they go to commercial break after the win happens, mm-hmm. when you walked back with Hopkins after yeah. Pulp Fiction, do you remember what you guys talked about? I don't remember saying anything with, uh, no, I think me and Roger were doing all the talking. All right. Cause yeah. he, um, yeah.
3: we both wanted together. So we were very happy. Um, but in the case of uh, Charlize and Dustin, it was great because Charlize is my neighbor, all right? So we, we, she was we like- you talked about? This yeah, is, yeah, yeah, I, I think I mentioned it, all right? And, you know, she was like, oh, Quentin, I'm so happy for you. And it was also Dustin Hoffman was the one that reminded me, he goes, no, no, take the envelope. Take uh, the envelope, uh, all right? Uh, I would have yeah. left the envelope there, <laughs> all right? But he goes, no, no, Quentin, take the envelope. And I still have the envelope. I don't have the envelope from Pulp Fiction, but I have the envelope for-
2: uh, who, uh, who has the Pulp Fiction? Uh, I'm just- the janitor, <laughs>
3: of, uh, <laughs> fucking no, Dorothy Chandler, and I guess
4: stole it. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, it's funny. I, I, now I have an idea for your tenth movie. You should do because since you do the idea of rewriting like the ending of with Shannon, Sharon Tate, and obviously yeah, the, re- yeah, yeah. the rewriting of the ending of uh, uh, Hitler and Masters, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. you should rewrite the uh, ending of the Oscars of <laughs> yeah, right. ninety four. Literally, like you rewrite. <laughs> he goes back. Pulp Please. wins, and yeah. we cut
5: to
3: Zemeckis. <laughs>
2: <and he's
5: like, laughs> Single tear rolling down Tom <laughs> Hanks's cheek.
4: Like he needed <laughs>
3: well, it. well, like yeah. I will tell you what I would rewrite all right if i could for 94 and uh, and i think it would have made the oscar ceremony uh it would have made the whole campaign really more exciting i wasn't involved with this i didn't even know that i should have been involved with this and i should have been um it was ridiculous that pulp fiction was put in the drama section of the golden globes it obviously should have been put in the comedy. Mm. As a matter of fact, I thought it was. It wasn't until a couple of days before the actual ceremony that I realized we were in the drama section. Wow. It's like, we're a comedy. Now, the only reason it wasn't, it was because everyone was talking about how violent it was. But what made it special was that it was as violent as it was, and it was really funny. Hence the Marvin getting yeah, shot Marvin shot in the Marvin face. In the yeah, face. Yeah. <laughs> It's a comedy. Every video store in America put it in the comedy section when it came out, and the fact that we were in the drama. So the thing about it is, I was shocked about that. But if we had been in comedy, then Forrest Gump would have won best drama. We would have won best comedy, and it would have been catch as catch can for the entire wow. season is that after. Why that. Hollywood's in comedy? Well, no, com- it does. It deserves to be in comedy. Okay, yeah, yeah. I it
2: mean- straddles both lines. Though there is drama. Well, they there absolutely is drama. There, but you know,
3: uh, the Golden Globes have tried to get me to put my movies in comedy every single year. I mean, maybe not *Hateful light. All right, but all the other ones, <laughs> they try to get me to put it in comedy. Go, Quentin! I'm telling you, it is the funniest movie of the year. If you put it in comedy, you will win. And I was like, it's "Like most of them are foreign. I go, guys, I can't put Django Unchained in comedy, all right? Yes, I agree. It is very funny. Yeah. But Americans won't think that shit's funny. <laughs> That's
2: <a> good call. <laughs> so true. I'm going to sidebar for one thing because I I just thought about it when I brought up the Marvin sh- uh, shooting sequence in Pulp Fiction. When I sat down with uh, Samuel L. Jackson recently for Spider-Man Far From Home, um I was asking him about that sequence and he told me a story that he feels that John Travolta actually shoots Marvin on purpose because he's mad that that guy that Marvin didn't alert him mm-hmm. about the the guy in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And in the movie, it comes across, it could come across as an accident, but Sam Jackson believes it was actually done on purpose, that Vincent does it on purpose. Mm-hmm. Where, where do you fall on that as the writer of that scene? Like, do, do you, are we supposed to think it's an accident or do you want us to think it's on purpose and thinking about the Marvin situation?
3: Well, it, uh, um, look, in my whole movies, like if I want you to know, I tell you. Right. And if I leave it open, I'm leaving it open for you. So I could tell you what I think, but if I tell you what I think, that is the way it is. And uh, um, I've got no problem with Sam's version of it, and I have no problem with anybody else who has that version of it. But I don't want to tell you what to think. I actually like—I like the fact that both both—I love it. I love any scenario where both ways almost equally work.
5: See, I don't want you. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't want you to tell me it was on purpose. I I like it better in my head me too. that it was an accident that it really was a legit. Like yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah, it yeah. changes the whole. Not in a. Worse way, but it would change how it for it, me. I, uh,
3: and, uh, you know, and frankly, that is more where I'm leaning, but at the same time, I don't want to shut the door right. on yeah. anyone who's invested in the other yeah. thing because the other thing works.
1: Yeah. You must love how much fun people are having with Brad Pitt's backstory. Oh, I love that. And his wife, right? Do you, I know I jumped. That, don't you all jump, jump. around <laughs> and ask
2: you to tell us, but <laughs> do you actually know in your mind what happens in that story?
3: Or, oh, yeah, yeah. Do yeah. You, yeah, you know, yeah, so does Brad, <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: wow.
3: I no, know. I, actually, I, one of the ways that I ended up getting Brad in the film all right, was uh, I wrote a whole book chapter about him on the boat with his wife, all right, and gave it to him, all right? What? Yeah. Uh, oh my God. It's called Misadventure. Yeah, uh, uh, and I, I. I so yeah, So he knows the whole thing. Okay. All right, and that was like one of the things that uh, pushed him over to actually wanting to do the film. Did you ever
1: show more of it? Did you ever show?
3: <laughs> no, 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 we didn't really show more of it, all right? Um. Uh. We kept it the way it is. You know, but, you know, to me, what I like about it, especially uh, like- how it exists in the movie is okay. So it's one of two things. It's either this guy is in this situation. He has a horrible moment of weakness and pulls that trigger and he gets away with it. You know, he gets away with it, but on one hand, I mean, you know, he's not spending the rest of his life in jail. But on another hand, he doesn't get away with it. And it's this heavy thing, constantly hanging over him. It, it's uh, it's, it's affected his ability to get work. It's affected the way that people look about him, uh, the, way, the way people think about him and talk about him. And it probably affects him mm. in a huge way. And then he has this moment of, you know, conceivably redemption at the end of the movie. All right. You know, that ends up happening. So that's one movie. That's, that's, that's a movie. That's a, that's a really good movie. That's yeah. a good, strong movie. So that's that movie. There's another movie. And this other movie is, he didn't do it. It that's what I was believe. literally an accident. It's an accident that happened. It, and it might be even more tragic than just an accident. He might've been thinking about it. And then the gun went off by accident. So he doesn't even know, did did a a little finger, was there a finger pull in there that I, because I was thinking about it? And, and, you know, uh, and so he can still torture himself about that. But he didn't, he didn't do it. It was an accident. Now he gets away with it. He doesn't go to jail for the rest of his life, but nobody believes it's an accident. And he's tarnished by this, Crime that he actually didn't commit. And he's defined by this crime that he didn't commit for the the next 20 years. And then that guy gets a chance at redemption. Those are two totally different movies, completely different movies, different characters, but they're both
1: valid, right? Is it also a Natalie Wood thing
3: at all? It has nothing to do with Natalie Wood. Really? Well, that's all I was going to ask. That's what yeah. I wanted. Yeah. It has nothing to do with Natalie Wood. It's the coincidence Wood. that her name is Natalie. Yeah, And that was literally, and look, I had no problem with it, but that was uh, 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 um, uh, Rebecca uh, Gay Harden, who played the character, all right? You know, she just came up with that. She just came up with my sister named Natalie as an improv. She just threw oh, that oh, in, wow. yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. okay.
2: Um, Rebecca you, Gay Hart, give me. Yeah. Do you consider that similar to how you feel about the briefcase and the band-aid? Uh-huh. Are those similar things? They all come from the same place. Okay, come from mm-hmm. the same place. Now, this is a little different,
3: though, because the briefcase, I want you to kind of put it together yourself and whatever you come up with is what you come up with. Here are two very specific scenarios. All right, that are are brought up by the whole wife situation, and uh, uh, you know, and uh, that's why I can describe them in this dramatic kind of way.
2: But they're both, but but they're they're both very different. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm going to transition to something that I think is interesting. We talked to a lot of filmmakers, and Sean's the only father of our podcast. We do not have children. I know you're about to be a father. Yes. Which congratulations! congratulations Thank you. you Very happy for you. Do you envision? at all the idea of how fatherhood will change you as a filmmaker. I know you can't look at it now because it hasn't really particularly happened yeah. yet, but do you wonder how you will change as a director and how, as a storyteller? And do you think it could create more creativity on your part in regards to keep going and keep making more movies? Do, have you thought about how fatherhood's going to change you as a director? Um, no, I guess I haven't because I mean, I guess when I, well,
3: not having lived it i i I guess when I look at it, I see limitations. <laughs> I don't see oh my god these, th- this door is going to open up, and this new level of creativity is gonna come pouring out you know uh uh uh, uh you know i I see that um my whole thing about directing is going off and climbing Mount Everest. Or whatever mountain I'm climbing, Fuji or Kilimanjaro or whatever the deal is. I keep coming up with mountain climbing analogies for what I'm trying to do. And, um, and the idea that, you know, now I have a child and I want to be around when the child's going to school and go to their little stupid plays and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. You know, uh, 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 uh um, um. Maybe I'm not as free to go and climb Mount Kilimanjaro, all right, and then and, and take the whole family and and you know put them in Africa, you know, for nine months or or, or for six months. Now, actually, my wife would be down w- would be down with that, all right. But you know, there is an aspect. I remember talking to uh, um, to Warren Beatty when he had uh, when he had his kids and how happy he was, and it was like, no, no, the you know the days of me making Reds are over
4: wow, wow. wow. Yeah.
3: you know and uh you know but then like not everybody i mean no one's done it the way Coppola did it with Inglour- uh, with uh uh Apocalypse now and he took the whole family to the yeah. philippines and and bet their whole you know, their house and everything yeah. on it and that's just the way it was right. and actually the fact that he did it with his family was actually part of the uh you know the grandiosity of the whole thing and they backed him 100% on it you know right. You know, and that uh, you know, and that was exciting. So, so one does not mean necessarily the loss of the other, but I guess, uh, uh, you know, So I haven't, you know, I, look, I'm a, I'm aware enough to know what I don't know, and so I don't know how it's going to change me, and I frankly can't wait to find out. Well, you then- have,
1: do you have a movie that you're waiting to be able to show your kid, like for the first viewing of? I can't wait till I can show you this. Mine was was McTiernan's first Die Hard.
3: Oh, really? Oh, wow, cool. <laughs> yes,
1: cuz that's just one of my favorite movies of all time.
3: Yeah, to me cuz I've actually watched this happen amongst uh, uh fathers and sons and everything and uh um uh I I I've watched this happen between fathers and sons and I've watched actually uh um uh parents and their daughters have different movies too. So it's actually kind of interesting, you know, uh I can't say what what child's going to be. However, on the day that I do have a son, I know that the father-son movie I'm really looking forward to have with them is uh, The Good and the Bad and the Ugly. Oh, yes. Nice. Yes. <laughs>
4: yes.
3: Oh, wow. I have actually, it's like, I, that was a very special movie when I I, I saw it with uh, uh, my mom and my stepdad. And it was, uh, and I've actually, uh, I've actually, it was funny because I even like when the, kids have been older. I've actually, uh, cause I have a really gorgeous print of the film on 35 millimeter and I've actually had, uh, uh like a couple of different fathers Go, You know what? My son's never seen that movie. I would love to watch that movie with my son. Like, well, come over to my house. Uh, Quentin, my son's I never w- seen it. I <laughs> will I have a child right <laughs> now. <if laughs> I'm going <laughs> to go home yeah. and have a kid with my wife and then I'll call, call you. I want yeah, yeah. wife <laughs> to have a child with. He has never We're seen it. Over. Well, okay, but let me, <laughs> let me follow up on that with a really cool story. One of the best reviews I've ever heard for, uh, uh um, Good and the Bad and the Ugly was uh, one of the movies I show pretty much like uh, with every movie, we have movie nights and we show different films. And the two constants that we usually show is we show a a sorcerer, William Freakin' Sorcerer. Nice.
1: (laughs) That's awesome.
3: And we show The Good and the Bad and the Ugly and uh and i've actually seen like the you know the the crew members bring their sons over you to see it. You have a projectionist it.
2: in your house who runs it?
3: Well, i do yeah. have a projectionist and runs hate run it in the house, but like in the when we do a movie, uh, we're doing a, a set, uh, Shannon usually develops a uh, a screening room for us to show movies at. Even if like literally building the screening building the projection booth and everything like we did in Colorado. All right, you know, for hate to late. LA. Yeah, the Sergio Cabucci Cinema Theater is what we called it. So, and so all of a sudden, like uh, Mark Yulano, the sound man, you know, right? his son saw Good and the Bad and the Ugly and was just gaga for it. All right. Um, so, uh, we're doing Inglorious Bastards in Germany and we're having these screenings. And Brad Pitt takes his son Maddox to see Good and the Bad and the Ugly. And Maddox is nine at the time. So he walks in with Maddox and they sit in the back and they sit there and watch the movie and and, and Maddox really loved it. And he was really proud of him. All right. Because oh wow, it's a nine year old kid and you have three hours. Fucking it was right there. All right. And he really got a kick out of the movie. So then they come home. And the mom, Angie, is, is, is waiting for them. And so, she, you know, and so they come walking through the door and Angie goes, uh, so, Maddox, did you like the movie? Yeah, mom, it was really great. It was terrific. I loved it. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, what was the movie about? Well, it's about this good guy. And it's about this bad guy. And it's about this ugly guy.
2: (laughs) That's what Sergio Leone's pitch was in the studio.
3: (laughs) And she goes, well, which should you like the best? And Maddox thinks about it.
4: I like the
2: ugly guy.
3: (laughs) 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 That's a great
6: review for the movie. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force.
5: So one awesome. more follow up on, on fatherhood. Have you thought about how you're going to introduce your own filmography in chronological order and just naturally, or are you going to introduce it at all? Maybe good question.
3: Yeah. Oh, no, no. Well, I'm definitely going to introduce it. I mean, they're going to have to deal with it one, <laughs> way, or one, one way or the other, or, uh, you know, uh, um, Start uh,
2: my best friend's birthday, Yeah. whatever, no, exists, whatever, I, whatever I, exists from that, which yeah, still yeah. has true romance dialogue. Yeah, in it, we absolutely way. have yeah. true
3: romance dialogue in it. Um, uh, I will, I but I don't know. I'm going to play that. I'm going to play that by ear. I think I'm, I'm, whatever I'll introduce to them will probably be, uh, it's going to probably be a lot younger than, than most people would imagine. All right. But uh, uh, it's going to be whatever I think would like, you know, float their boat the most at, you know, at seven or eight.
1: <laughs> All right. We're going to get to uh, Mr. Al Pacino, the legend who is having an incredible year. Um, Hell yeah. uh we're all blown away by his performance in The Irishman. His performance is Hoffa. And it, it reminds us that he got to start with you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, talk to me just about casting Pacino, directing Pacino, you know, being able to work with him. Obviously, you have De Niro also, too, back yeah, from yeah. Jackie Brown, too. These are icons, these are legends, these are people who we would just, you know, love to spend any time with and mm-hmm. you're getting to cast yeah. them as characters of yours. Uh, what was it like working with Pacino on this?
3: Well, it it was it was fantastic. It was really, really cool because um I've always been a huge fan of Al Pacino's, but in particularly he was an actor that I really wanted to hear him say my dialogue. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That was like, he was one of the main actors out there that has not said my dialogue that I wanted to hear like the words come out of his mouth. Mm. And, um, and so even before like the script was done uh, about a year earlier, I started reaching out to him. And so we started having dinners and we started getting together and I saw uh, uh he had, he had that tr- the play that David Mamet wrote where he kind of plays Trump on Broadway. I went and saw that. Right, right. Hung out with him afterwards and then he was like he was like really friendly. and I was like, "Oh, wow. Okay." And then uh um uh and uh, uh his de facto stepdaughter Cammy, all right, uh was in my uh my friend Eli Roth's movie, The Death Wish yeah. film. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, uh, um, you know, so I had all these neat excuses to meet Al. And so then we started actually going out to dinner and then he got to know my, uh, uh, uh my fiance. And, uh, so we, we, we went out to dinner like quite a few different times, like about like, you know, six, you know, six or seven times over the course of the last like year and a half mm-hmm. before I'd even showed him the material. Mm-hmm. And we were really kind of getting uh, to know each other. In fact, it was even kind of, uh, um. We had, we had this one moment where I was like getting into his head. We had this really one moment where it was like uh, uh, I'm talking to him about older actors, I'm wanting to know his take on them. And I asked him about the actor Aldo Ray,
4: mm.
3: and uh, and he goes, "Oh, well, Aldo Ray was great. He was fantastic." He went like, oh. there was this moment. Oh, was such a moment where it was like a uh, scene lament." I uh, was meeting him, with him for the Charles Durning role in Dog Day Afternoon. And so he came in to audition and I was just, I was just almost embarrassed that he's auditioning for me. Wow. But we're, but we're, you know, we're doing the scene together and it's, it's just fantastic. And it's amazing. You know, just didn't decide to go a different way, but just to be able to do the scene with him, it was just so great. And I go, You're not talking about other ray. I think you mean Ralph Meeker.
4: Yes, I do.
3: (laughs) How did you know that? (laughs) I can read your mind. Fuck,
2: I can't read yours!
3: (laughs) How did he know that? How did he know that?
2: (laughs) That's a really good Pacino, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <That's> <laughs> there's awful. a scene in this film. I'm going to skip ahead briefly because I think it's one of the most powerful scenes in the movie that I thought a lot about after I saw it. our producer, Gabe over there, who was with us when we saw it, when we walked out of the film, we were all in love with the film, but it's, it's, it's a very different experience from you as a filmmaker in the sense of, I felt that it was, a, it was, you're, you're relaxing in these moments. We're hanging out with these characters. It's, it's, it's a different type of tone and pacing for you, at least from a perspective of someone who's a fan of yours. There's a moment in the movie where Pacino tells DiCaprio that your audience is going to have a psychological effect about you always playing the heavy. And they're always going to think of you as the heavy if you keep playing the heavy. And I was wondering, is that coming from a place of someone like you as a filmmaker who has a very, you have a very distinct tone and storytelling that you do. Every movie you do is different, but there's elements of your voice in all your movies. And I feel it here more because I feel like this is more of a personal film for you as a love letter to Los Angeles are you saying anything about how people are going to experience Hollywood in that moment and the idea, and this is something Gabe and I discussed, we psychologically expect a certain type of film from you. And then this one was very different in my opinion. Are you saying something about that? Am I reading into that or wh- wh- where did that dialogue come from?
3: Oh, well, I mean, like it, it, it came from, it came from the reality, you know, of, of, of the given scene of the fact that, you know, Rick Dalton was a heroic leading man and that's you know and Jake Cahill owns his own bones as being a a, a western icon from that time however if he's showing up with Ron Eli and getting his ass kicked by Tarzan in this in this episode and getting his ass kicked by Alias Smith and Jones in that episode and getting his ass kicked by the $6 million man in another episode and getting his ass kicked by Robert Urich and SWAT in another episode, then little by little by little, the heroic stature that he had both as a leading man is going to get chipped away mm-hmm. because, well, apparently- any swinging dick on a network show can beat the fuck out of him, right. you know. Um, and then also, Jay Cahill himself will little by little get tarnished in you know in uh, uh, in in people's minds when they you know when they watch it on a. Uh, um, you know, when they watch it on, uh, on reruns, I go, "Well, wow, you know, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was back when he was Jake Cahill. Now I'm watching Michael Douglas kick his fucking ass on the streets right, of right. San Francisco. <laughs> all right. Okay. Having said that, I, you know, so, so that's where I was coming from as far as all that was concerned. Um, but, uh, a, a couple of critics brought up what you're talking about. I wasn't thinking about it as any inner monologue, uh, uh, coming out, but, um, you know, I have not, I have not had a problem defining myself as both a genre filmmaker and an enthusiast of genre filmmaking. Now, my whole thing is I want to transcend genre on one, on one hand. On one hand, I want to transcend the genre. On another hand, I still want to deliver the goods that the genre has to offer. I don't want to do an art film meditation on genre. I want to deliver and so if uh, uh, I'm doing a kung fu movie, I want it to be as good as Five Fingers of Death. <laughs> you know, uh, um, not this weird arty hybrid of that. All right. Um, frankly, I want it to mean a little bit more than Five Fingers of Death. But yeah, but that's <laughs> the thing that I'm. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's what I, that's what I'm dealing with. But over the course of time, and that kind of happened a lot, with, especially with the think pieces. But the people who 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 don't like me or don't like the movie. Uh some of those tropes that they have about me have have been dyed in the wool a little bit. And so they come out. And so I'm now, you know, as defined, you know, so if you like me, well, those can be good things. If you don't like me, those are a checklist of what you don't like about me. But frankly, to tell you the truth, though, if you go through film history, it really is a batch of honor all right, because that means that uh, uh, your work is strong, your work is vital, and uh, you know if your work means something, then you're going to have real enthusiasts. But consequently, you're going to have people who really, really don't like you. Uh, and Hitchcock had that, and he had, and he had those think piece reviews that were against him in the last ten years of his career. Pe- Peckinpah had that. He had those reviews. Ken Russell had that. All right. Uh, Oliver Stone had that. You know, these guys were all provocateurs, and that's just you know, if you you're not going to be a provocateur, you don't have to deal with it. But if you are a provocateur, that's that's the you're signing up for it.
5: Amen. Piggybacking on Kevin's idea of expectations, uh, leading up to the film's release, there was one name, one word that people were seemed to just overly attach to, which was Manson. People coming into this, this is Tarantino's Manson movie. And then we see the movie and we realize he's really not in it that much, which I loved because he was such an egomaniac. I feel like it would drive him nuts that he wasn't really the focus of this movie. I'm curious, was that on purpose? Because talking about expectations, I don't know if you ever read the Wikipedia page for your films, there was a whole fake plot yeah, 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 on yeah, the Wikipedia yeah. about the, about this <laughs> explosive ending with Manson, yeah. which was, this was the complete opposite of that, which I'm so glad it was the opposite of that
4: yeah.
3: because screw him. Yeah, well, the thing is, it's actually interesting. Is like, I had a little bit more with him and I actually put that in the uh, supplementary section mm. of the DVD, the other scenes that I had with uh, Charlie. I put that in there one because Damien was so fantastic. All right, Did you see him in Mindhunter. Yeah, oh, yeah. Of course yeah. I do. Oh, he's amazing yeah. in that, and I'm the hugest fan of his. From I mean, he's one of my favorite
2: character actors that there is, and you feel his presence the whole movie, even oh, though yeah. he's not on screen. You, That's the Absolutely. Yeah.
3: That's the way she says like, oh, like Charlie would really yeah. dig he's you. Like always, Charlie, yeah. he's in
2: that spawn rant scene. He's in every moment for me. He's That's every how moment. I feel. Yeah.
3: That's how I feel. And uh, uh, and I didn't want to put that. Ultimately, uh, the way it worked out, I didn't want to put that in the movie, but I didn't mind putting it in here. Because now that you've seen the movie, you can look at you one. You can appreciate what Damien did. Damon did. You can appreciate what Damon did, and then also you can see. Oh, okay. Well, this is a little bit more that he had dealing with that culture. And I was also, I was pretty happy with with Manson's dialogue in it too. I I had to. I had to find the right uh, cadence for his. uh, uh, For his. uh, uh, his, his speech patterns. And I think I did a, a pretty good job. But one of the things I was going to say earlier on, when you asked the question about how things would change and I got lost, I got, um, I lost one of the trains of thought that I wanted to go, uh, go to, and you brought it back now by bringing it up. Um, one of the biggest changes that would have happened if Cielo drive didn't happen is if C- if Cielo drive didn't happen, the La, La Bianca murders would never have happened.
4: Mm.
3: So there would be, No Manson ethos. There would be no Charles Manson as a cult figure. There would be no Charles Manson as this like sinister pop culture, ephemeral hero slash villain. All right. That has existed for the last 40 years. You would never know his name. You would never know who he is. He would just continue going on the way he was. The kids would eventually split up. All right, they would get rousted out of a uh, uh, spawn ranch one time too many, and then they would, and, and it all would have dissipated. And this, um, and where that would, you know, that would change true crime history irrevocably. Mm. But it would also even change the history of Los Angeles. It's like Charlie and his quote unquote family are a part of the fabric of the history of Los Angeles from that time and then from all that time afterwards. I mean, to even such a degree, and I get it uh, uh, young actors come out to Hollywood and they make a pilgrimage up to Cielo Drive at midnight. Margot did it. Margot mm. said she, on the night really? of the murders, one night, her and her buddy. Walked up Cielo Drive and head in the bushes and read helter skelter by flashlight. Oh, wow. Wow. That's no insane. Kidding. Yeah. Wow. You know, and uh, um, and it's you know it's 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 you know uh, but you know all the girls playing the family members in the movie were really enraptured with they're not enraptured with Charlie and the killings that happened but they were enraptured by the by the mythos, right? Right. And that's, in the, and especially when you're young, that mythos is enrapturing. Yeah, yeah sure. All right, you know, and, uh, um, and uh, uh, so like the, they did tons of research that I didn't have to ask them to do. They did it. They came, they showed up on the set of Spawn Ranch with all their little re- relationships and the, the, uh, 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 see uh, uh 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 um you know the little massagey kind of things that the characters do all that stuff like where like uh, um lena's kind of just always touching uh margaret and mm. margaret's always kind of touching lena as they kind of th- i didn't direct any of that they just did it they just mm. they watched i gave them all the stuff to watch and then they, and they had a lot of time together so they figured all that that uh, you know uh, stuff out.
1: Even oh. just their physical camaraderie when they first cross yeah. Brad's car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With yeah. the amazing Mrs. Robinson beat drop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They have such a, a, a chemistry to them that they just look like a family as they're yeah. crossing.
3: Absolutely. No, I literally shooting them was like shooting a documentary. Like when they're good, dumpster diving, I set them up and they just do it. And then I can just film and I can throw anything at them. Okay. You fund the hot dog buns. You do this, you do that. But other than that, it's just film them. Right. That's
1: amazing. <laughs> um, Quentin, you famously got your start um, in a video store Yeah. and I'm an old also. So I remember spending hours just perusing covers yeah. forever. Um, but this next generation, you know, you were able to sort of surround yourself with that passion. Yeah. Those stores don't exist anymore yeah. or they're few and far between. Where does that next generation of filmmaker coming up, you know, find that video store inspiration because streaming doesn't seem to be the answer to me.
3: Well, Oh, it was funny. Cause actually um, I never had Netflix here, but I ended up getting Netflix in Tel Aviv because that's where my wife is. And so I ended up getting Netflix in Tel Aviv. And, uh, and then when I got it there, I was like, Oh, Hey, this is kind of fun. I kind of see why people like this. This is really cool. And then when I came back to uh, Los Angeles, I wanted to meet with Ted Serrano's and just tell him, let him, because he's been always very, very complimentary to me and everything. And I want to let him know, hey, I got the system now and I like it and I appreciated it. But I said to him, I go, if I've got, can can I tell you a couple problems that I have? (laughs) And he's like, yeah, sure. I want to hear. I go, look, my big problem is when I looked up 70 cinema, I was surprised by how paltry it was right. Mm. I go. I mean, I looked up Burt Reynolds to see what you had playing, and I know that they, they change every month. I'm I looked up Burt Reynolds to, to see what you there. had playing. You had four movies, and two of them were long. The longest yard.
4: Oh. <laughs> oh, no,
3: they love Sandler. <laughs> they Poor really Sandler. do love Sandler. Oh, that's terrible. Okay, so we have four Burt Reynolds movies, and two of them <laughs> were the longest yard.
4: <laughs> that hurts so much. <laughs> he winced. He
3: winced in front of me. Right,
4: right, right. Yeah. <laughs> that's so funny.
3: You told me when when we
5: spoke for Django that whenever you worked at the video store, that a lot of times people, kids, would come up to you and say, "Look, I, I, I don't, I'm, I don't know what I'm looking for, but I'm looking for something that's X, Y, and Z. Something that does yeah, this yeah. for me." What would a kid have to come up and say to you now for you to go over, take an old dusty copy of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? dust it off, put it on the counter and say, this is what you're looking for.
3: Well, well, here's the truth. It was rarely kids who did that. It was mostly housewives. Okay. Interesting. It was mostly housewives. Why is that? Well, no, because they, they're, you know, they're the, you know, uh, the kid, the kids have a good idea what they want to see and what they don't want to see that they're going to watch with their friends. You know, the housewife is like, she's choosing like, like almost like they did in the old days. It was like, uh, it was the wives that chose the movie that the whole family like in the 40s 30s and the 40s and the 50s that the whole family would see because they're the ones reading film fan and modern screen and and kind of keep up with a little bit like what's hip and what's not and so like they're the ones that chose the movie Mm -hmm. and then the whole family went and saw what they now if the husband likes audie murphy then he goes and sees that stuff but you know what i'm trying to say oh Yeah. yeah yeah And, um, no, best years of our life. You're going to like it. It's really good. You know, uh, <laughs> Harold Russell, he's really good in the movie. We want to support him, you know? Uh, uh, um, and so, uh, so the housewives were the ones like picking the three videos. Right. Yeah. And, um, and, and I actually, I, I, uh, uh, I prided myself on not just shoving the stuff that I liked, mm-hmm. uh, down their throats. I, I prided myself on, um, trying to kick into what who they were and what they liked and try to put something in their hands that they would like, you know, I mean, you know, people are like, well, I want something funny. Well, give me a couple of examples of comedies that you like. And then would I have an idea, All right. So if they said Tootsie and they said this, or they said that, well, then I had a good idea. If they said Caddyshack, then I had another, I had a better idea, uh, you know? And so, uh, you know, so I, I would always get you know, a good romantic movie. Well, okay. Well, but that's a really wide open subject. I, I can definitely point you to some movies that I think are romantic, but what do you think? Are, right. Give me a couple of romantic movies that you think are romantic, you know? And so, and they, they would tell me, and I would I, I would put movies in their hands that I didn't particularly care for, but I thought they would like. Um, you know, so that all kind of thing happened. I mean, you know, where, um, um, I, this is not exactly answering, your, this is more answering your question than answering your no, question. No, I'm fascinated by it. No, I'm, yeah, I'm all for it. Pinballing yeah. back, is, we're not
4: scorekeeping. It's yeah. okay.
3: <laughs> um, frankly, I think um, if you don't have video stores to go to where you get to see the whole, you know, like, I mean, I never knew that the video boxes in the horror section would become so iconic in my memory. To me, they were just the video boxes of the horror section.
2: Remember the Dead Alive box? Yeah, 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 uh-huh,
3: yeah, yeah, uh-huh, yeah.
2: That was awesome. Brain Dead or whatever it was called, yeah, or yeah. or the Dead and Buried box, or any
3: Little of the uh, Army of Darkness. Yeah, yeah. or the, or any of the slasher films that you never even saw theatrically, but yeah. they, but they Elvis were they're, they're, cool yeah yeah they too. were ever yeah. they, they were always it's in the Alive, section. which was
1: a baby cradle. I want to which say one? it's alive. I think yeah yeah it's the alive was definitely the baby cradle it's alive
3: and it lives again. It's the two baby cradle and it was a Warner Brothers film. so It was a Warner Brothers green clamshell box, The bigger ones, right? Yeah. With oh, the yeah. green, with green yeah. color. Yes. Was, Didn't Exorcist big, have one of those? Yeah, yeah I think yeah. Exorcist yes. did have one. Yes. Brothers too. that's right. Yeah. All right. And so the thing is, I never realized that for an entire generation of kids growing up in the 80s during that time when, you know, they were 14 or 15 coming into the video show that I was working in, you know, th- those uh, that, that whole horror section, that whole video shelves would like become this iconic thing the way movie posters are to me. I think the answer to the question is where they're going to find that, frankly, is, um, is in podcasts. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs>
2: it's, or, it's, or Amoeba music, if you can go there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah. But that, yeah.
3: And that's well, but that's still DVDs for sale. And that's a little real, different, you know, uh, um, and it's whatever's available now, even though they do a pretty good job of all yeah, that. Yeah. I, I will admit that. Not looking
5: for like a pat on the back, but like for the press tour for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you did more podcasts than like sit down oh. TV Interviews. I, Why I, is that? Because we well, always used to get you the yeah, TV for Django minutes, and Bastards yeah. and everything.
3: But yeah. this film was different. Why is that? Well, this was. Well, frankly, I, I didn't really feel. Uh, um, I didn't feel that that the uh, uh, five to six minute to seven minute um, entertainment journalist aspect was the way to we did our best sell this movie yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. i didn't think it, I, I didn't think that was the you know uh, w- you know where three of the questions will be the same and every one of them and whatever um uh, i actually thought that you would get a better sense of me if i went on movie oriented podcast all right that i had actually listened to that i had a, I had a, I knew what i was walking into i wasn't walking into a fucking propeller all right i knew what i was getting into i had a sense of the, uh, the personalities i had a sense of your voices i had a sense of the of the give and take and i had a sense of what y'all liked and you don't always have to like me, but you are But you get you get it. I get the show. I liked it. Yeah. yeah. All right. And so, thus, I could go on, and then uh, and then I I could be me. And it was movie oriented. Yeah, of course. It was all movie oriented. You guys were all movie fans, and we can be talking about my movie, and we could shift into another movie, and we could shift into this, and we could shift into that. And I thought that was a better use of my time because I actually thought you got more of me in that situation, and also I just find those. Sh- things more interesting. I do really like the, um, you know, the fun, uh, for the most part, movie oriented podcast. And the thing about it is when you guys like, you know, uh, uh, you know, you're always dealing with the movies that come out, but you're also, but you're constantly relating them mm. to movies from the past, you know? And so it, you know so it's like, uh, 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 a Mike Flanagan, episode could be just as much about the history of horror cinema in general as Mike Flanagan.
4: All right. Depending on how this
3: deals versus that. Yeah, Yeah, of course. I'm going
2: to, you mentioned liking our show and I'm going to be a fan just for a second here because uh, when I was in college and kill bill came out, I, you know, I went and saw it, you know, multiple times opening weekend. I, and this was very special to me because when I was uh, watching that film for the first time, I had read online that the house of blue leaves scene was, was in full color in the Japanese release. And I ordered the $120 like really cool box set that my wife still has the Okinawa shirt, which she just wore. We went to to Okinawa recently. I
3: bet she looks cute in it because it's a cute shirt. I'll show you a photo. It's a great (laughs) shirt. But it was in that box. He's not going
2: to
5: disagree with you about that. It was in that box for
2: all those years. And she's the first person to ever wear it. So I, (laughs) I bring that up because when I got that DVD seeing that scene in full color was always amazing to me. And I ended up taking Japanese in college because of that movie. It it, it influenced me more than anything. And I'm about, I'm going to show you my new tattoo in a second, but that's another thing. I have a kill bill one, but I want to bring this up because I always found this interesting with, with the house of blue leaves sequence going to black and white. Mm -hmm. um, I've always wanted to ask you the specific idea of how you decided where you were going to start the black and white and end it. Because originally I believe you planned on that being in full color and the MPA did not like the spraying of the blood Mm -hmm. and all that blood you talk about that conversation you had with them specifically what that change was like for you to have to actually alter your, your film based on a rating system and kind of how you came to the conclusion of getting it, um, the way you did. Cool.
3: Um, can we st- pause for just a second while we're in the restroom?
1: Yeah. Oh my God. Do you, uh, can you believe they're doing a Top Gun sequel?
3: Well, you know, it's funny. I, I, I know Tom a little bit and I asked him about that. Yeah. And I was like, uh, um, I go, so you're doing a Top Gun sequel? He goes, yeah, yeah, we're doing it. I go, how can you do that without Tony? Yeah, and, it, question. and he was like, and he goes like, oh, I know. He goes, I, like, I agree with that. I understand. That's how we always thought about it. But then I think it was a guy who did Oblivion actually came up with the story. He goes...
2: Just Kaczynski, right? Yeah, he
3: goes, he just, you know, he came up with a really great story. Okay. He came up with a great story that really worked, that I really enjoy taking the character further in that way. And it was like, you know, the script. He goes, the answer, the answer to your question is the script. Okay. They came up with a really good idea.
1: Okay. I cool. Back to the blue leaves. Well,
2: yeah, and I guess before you answer the question, I'm going to show you this. Uh, Holy
1: shit. <laughs>
2: so that's sorry, Hanzo sword, and and it, And it's actually healing. I got it uh, last week, and that says Kill Bill. Oh man, yeah, bravo! No. She, uh, I, she did a really good job. We got phase pictures man. in our tech. That's kind of amazing. Look I at mean, the shading a, on the Hattori uh, logo. Yes, I yeah. know.
3: No, it's absolutely right there, man. Tori Yeah,
2: Tori Hanzo. <laughs> <Yeah>, Tori Hanzo.
3: <laughs> yeah, the Okaido bear. If you come across, <laughs> what's that <laughs> line?
2: If you come across God, God will be cut. Oh yeah, my yeah, God! Yeah, one yeah. of the best lines ever. Yeah, the
1: Okinawa bear, right yeah, there. Man. Yeah, Okinawa it. lions. Give me Okinawa lion. I gotta ask real fast, Quentin. Do you have? Do you have? Tattoos? No, I don't. No. If no. W- does, this, does this weird you out Kevin It's have a this? lot of movie related tattoos for movies that are very passionate. Like he's very passionate about. If you were to get one, what's a movie that you would want to have on your body forever?
3: <laughs> well, the reason I don't have any tattoos is because there's nothing I want on my body forever. <laughs> all right. does it you that I have? No, it doesn't bother uh, me at all. I consider it uh 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 no, i I uh, I'm 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 very tickled. All right. You know, uh, would you show me that? i other people have showed me, uh, ink that they've done that like, I'm wow. I'm, I mean, that to me is the ultimate, that is the ultimate, uh,
2: uh, uh at a boy.
4: <laughs> That's why I told
2: you the kill bill story. Going back to that is because like we grow, we, we all grew up on movies and your filmography just happened to be during the time period that I grew up. Yeah. So you are the big reason why I've seen Rio Bravo. You're the big reason why I've gone back and watched but all I'm these saying, films.
3: Just even while, but even looking at your arm, looking at the, no, but put, put your arm the way the sleeve oh, normally falls. Out. All right, just the fact that like, the you, you know, the end of the blade is like always kind of sticking out. <laughs> yeah. It kind of reminds me of uh, Clooney's tattoo in From Dust Till Dawn where he's
1: kind of up on his neck a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. one of the best reveals when he takes oh, yeah. The, the yeah and off like finally sleeve. Yeah, the yeah.
2: sleeve. I almost off. got You're So Cool right here. I haven't done that one yet time for that there's on the napkin time, time time. The talking
3: about fandom you but, oh, the oh, wait,
2: was, wait. Uh, the mpa question yeah okay so okay
3: so to answer your question <laughs> <laughs> um no uh it's not exactly the way i think you think it is the way okay. you the way you presented this it is why I to asked. me yeah um i had a wonderful relationship with the mpa and especially with joan graves that, uh, uh, you know, it, nobody was in anybody's pocket. We were, she had a job to do and I had a job to do, but she actually did like my movies Mm. and she appreciated what I was trying to do. And, uh, uh, and I was willing to work with her and she was willing to work with me and it lasted for my entire career. All right. And she just retired just recently, but there was even a point in the case, in the case of, uh, um, Pulp Fiction where, uh, she was just, uh, you know, she wasn't the head of the MPA. Richard Hefner was the head of the MPA then. And, um, and she was just like assigned to my movie. And so we were dealing with an aspect of the film and I knew, cause Richard Hefner had this whole thing of, he was going to stop this violence in movies in, in his last year. If it was one thing he did, mm. And he had really ran, herd over true romance in a really bad way. And so the head never gets into it unless it comes into arbitration. So I'm never going to go to arbitration because I don't want Richard Hefner <laughs> sticking his big nose in this thing. Right. Mm. So I'm going to make it work with the board that they give me. And Joan was the head of that board. And finally it came down to... We're working together. Everything's going fine. And I, I, I make a cut and she comes back and she says, you need to take a few more frames out. Mm-hmm. I know what I said. And I mean what I said. It's just it's just a little too long. It's a little too lingering. If you take a few frames out, you'll get your R. I promise you, Quentin, you'll have an R. Just, just bear with me take a few more frames out and I promise you we'll be happy. We can give it an R and feel okay about the R and and your movie will absolutely survive. Not a problem. Just, I, I'm asking you to go a little deeper, but just bear with me. I go, okay, Joan. Okay. I'll do it. I'll do it. And then I did it. Now Richard Hefner hears about it and he's like, okay, so what's going on with this Tarantino movie? Because I'm already a known entity from Reservoir Dogs and True Romance. All right. So what's with this Tarantino? Well, it's okay, Richard. You know, this Joan. It's okay, Dick. Everything's fine. We, we're Well, I want to see it.
4: <laughs>
3: I said, well, you, no need. I mean, he hasn't called her arbitration everything. I want to see it. So she shows him the sequence. Not the whole movie, but the sequence. In full color. Yeah, yeah. In full color. And we're talking about, and we're not talking about Kill Bill. We're talking about, uh, we're talking about Pulp Fiction at the time. Yeah, this is Pulp Fiction. Oh, okay.
2: Yeah. And. um Oh, what scene in Pulp Fiction are you referring to? Well, I'm, I'm being ambiguous. Okay. I got you. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. I'm, I'm, I'm being ambiguous. Okay. I'm being bro- on you. purpose. I got you. All right.
3: And, um, <laughs> and he, uh, and he looks at it and he goes, well, that's not enough. He has to take more out. And she goes, well, no, Richard, I told him. No, if he did this, I would give him an R. I go, well, I'm sorry. It's just not enough. And she goes, well, then Richard, then I have to resign. Wow. Wow. Good for her. Because I mean, I made a deal with him. And if my, my word means nothing, then I'm, I I can't work for this organization any longer. You know? And he goes, okay, fine. It's fine. Let it go. Let it go. (laughs) And then, you know, and then she became the head of the MPAA. Okay. You know, and so you know, and, and and we had a good relationship built on negotiation and trust and understanding. She's got a job to do, and I got a job to do, and 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 we're and no one's trying to m- monkey with the other one. At the same time, it's my job to be strategic because I want to get done what I want to get done. Sure. So, in the case of uh, Kill Bill, I realized early on that like, obviously people are going to talk about the violence in the movie. Well, it's a Kung Fu movie. And I'm, I'm even jumping off from, you know, like some of the seventies samurai gonzo kind of movies, like baby Card from hell and stuff like that. You know, so that's a jumping, that's an aesthetic jumping off point. And um, so I'm thinking about that and I go, okay, how do I win the battle and the war? And the violence is a given. I have no problem with the violence. It's going to be the red blood that gets me, though. Americans can't look at it the right way. Europeans can't. White people can't look at it the right way. In Asia, they get it. They get it in Asia. They get it in Italy, oddly enough. But they don't, they're not going to get it in England, and they're not going to get it in America, if it's just a wash in blood, that will be a surgeon general warning in every single review. You'll mm. drown in blood. You'll drowned in blood. The blood, the blood, the blood, the blood, the blood, the blood, the blood. When they say drowned in blood, what are they really saying? They're saying drowned in red. Mm. Oh, wow. It's about the red of the blood. It's not about the blood. It's not about the. It's not about the intellectual idea of blood. It's about a visceral reaction to flowing liquid red. Sure, it's
2: almost like Scorsese in Taxi Driver. I think his was almost yeah. more orange. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so,
3: I'm giving them this forty minute nonstop. Cut limbs uh, (laughs) and people have uh, have garden hoses for uh, veins. All right, and you know, yeah, arm gets lopped off, and it's like the Bellagio fountain (laughs) (laughs) shoots out of (laughs) them. You know, and I got that from Shogun Assassin, and and, you know, and uh, Baby Card at the River Sticks, and all those like really groovy Japanese movies. So I had a whole scheme where it's like, okay, look, we're not going to get our R the first go around. I mean, we're definitely not going to get it the first go around, but we're not even going to get it the second go around. We're not going to get it the third go around. We're going to get the fourth go around. Okay, we, but we, it's a process. We're going to have to go through it and we got to get them there and we will get them there by the fourth screening. And so then the, the whole plan, was, okay, we show them something horrendous at the beginning. <laughs> they say that. And then I cut it down a little bit and then show it to them a second time. And then, okay, well, it's, it's a little better the second time. And then they give me some notes. And then I work on those notes. And and, and, and they were also really good because like they give you notes and maybe you can't do that note, but you can do something else that then affects the overall. So that note's not addressed, but now the overall is a little different because you did what you did. And the whole idea was to get through three rounds of notes from them. And then on the fourth... Go to black and white. Oh, okay. And then when I go to black and white, they go, oh, okay, well, fine. Well, now, great. Everything's fine.
1: Wow. Okay.
3: Now you got your R. So that was the whole plan. Now, the wrinkle in the plan was we did better in the first three passes than I ever expected us to do. Oh, wow. So much so that I could have gone out with it in color. If I had done like a couple of minute, minute things for that fourth screening, we would have gotten an R with it
1: in color. Wow.
3: What you didn't think. And so I had to think, okay, do I want it in color in America Is it for the Western world? Yeah. Do I want it in color for the Western world? Or was I right all along? Was I right all along that the, the onslaught of red will have a negative effect on the audience and the prognosticators of the audience when they talk about the movie <laughs> If we kept it all in color for the entire sequence, then it's just a bloody movie. And that is all people will talk about. I don't mind it in Asia because they get it. Right. But these Americans just don't get it. They just don't get it. That's all they will talk about. So, you, you know, and- I actually think it's kind of cool when it turns to black me and too. white, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it literally is a situation where I get to very rarely does it happen when you get to have your cake and eat it yeah, too. Sure. And to me, I kind of, you get to have your cake and eat it too. And there always was the Japanese version. Right. So that was always out there. So if you wanted to see it that way, you could. So, you know, uh, um, so that was, that was the huge decision when I could have gotten everything I wanted but then, no, there was a reason for, for the George Bush pronunciation of the strategery all right, you know, <laughs> that I, I put into place at the beginning. And like, no, 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 keep going on that idea. Yeah, That's that's the way to go. And do you see my point of where I'm coming from about the oh, idea yeah. of yeah. Uh, yeah. being, the, about just the blood just being a, a bridge yeah. that, that could Never be crossed.
1: Yeah. I figured after De Palma's carry, we're okay with anything.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> gotta exactly. get away with the
2: elevator scene. I mean, it's, it's
3: yeah, insane. Right, well, it's exactly.
2: abstract. I, oh, you're right. It's, it's uh, yeah, abstract. It's, it's kind of brutal, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, no, it's
3: abstract. It's a little image. It's not something that's happening, and like there's yeah. a cause and effect of it. I cut, chop somebody's arm off, there's a cause and effect for why the blood's happening. Thank
2: you for telling that story. I've actually always wanted to ask
4: that. Thank yeah. you for
1: bringing it. as a filmmaker, too, like when you've come into the industry, you don't even think about battles with the MPAA. You know, you just want to well, make enough, Gory. In a
3: weird way I did for the simple fact that I grew up watching reading Fangoria magazine. Okay. With every filmmaker, all oh, these motherfuckers are Nazis. My God, <laughs> <laughs> fucking motherfuckers. So were you excited for your first battle with them? <laughs> no, I realized that these guys are wrong. All right. The Palma's approach with the MPA was wrong. Wes Craven's approach with the MPA was wrong. These fucking Nazis, how dare they fucking do this to me? All right. It was like. Well, of course you're not going to get along with them if that's the way you're fucking talking about them in the press. If you're treating them that way, all right? Like, I got to make friends with these guys. Uh, They have a power over me that no studio is ever going to have. Yeah, it's true. And then and then, oddly enough, the reverse ended up happening. I had a fantastic relationship with them. And see, the studios are used to using the MPAA as the bad guys. All right. They don't have to be the bad guys because the MPAA is going to be the bad guy. So they get to sit on the sideline and it's not our fucking fault. Yeah, right. You're contracted for an R. So as long as as you deal with them and get your R and then you talk to us. Right. I got R's on... Like, horrendous fucking shit.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and the studio had, like, you know, now the studio actually had to, like, okay, no, like, we want you to cut it now, <laughs> all right? This is too much, all right? But they actually had to, like, like step on the line of fire and let, let those guys be the bad guys.
2: Uh, I would love i would love to watch the MPA watching the Tim Roth scene in the car and Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. They're probably flipping out over how red the blood I was on, his, it, on man. his shirt. I'm yeah,
1: dying, yeah. man. Big Ram says, the MPA is going to let that guy do this to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the guy in the mask. Oh, my God. <laughs> now, even
3: when it came to Reservoir Dogs, when it, uh, that was before I was actually dealing with them personally. We had somebody at Live that was handling that. But then when we, we made our little choices and made our little cuts and then like uh, the MPA guy told the guy live, he goes, Hey, look, you tell the director as far as we're concerned that he made some tough choices, but I think he made the right choices for his movie and he, and his movie works intellectually and artistically. Hmm. Huh. He he made no compromises. We, we're actually proud of, of how he took our notes. Wow.
2: Which is interesting because that Kill Bill scene is more comical. It's more of like a fun moment. Yeah. yeah.
3: Well, you know, thinking about
5: fandom, we were talking, obviously, with Kevin here, we were talking about, like, ultra fandom. You were very kind to Kevin and myself a few weeks ago when we saw you at the restaurant the Four Seasons. Mm-hmm. And you, I mean, you were trying to eat. You were in the corner. I think you were you were, you were maybe talking to I had no someone. idea that I was there yes. during the Irishman restaurant yes. uh, uh,
1: yes. Scorsese was yes. across the yes. hall, literally. Yes. And we literally and, joked, if, when you walk into a restaurant and notice that it's, it's a BFCA event, how do you not just turn, turn around, around, and around and leave and yeah. get
2: out
5: yeah. of there as quickly as possible? I considered possible. it. Yeah, well, and I get that. And so you were so being surrounded by
3: people like people were asking you. I know, you, but I'd driven all the way there. Yeah. parked
5: the yeah. car. I
3: stayed. I'd have gotten out of there so fast.
5: We were trying to get out of there, and we're a part of the BFCA but um, people people were asking for photos people were like all over you and you took a, a couple of minutes out of your time and you were very kind to myself and yeah. Kevin and I'm curious as to like fan protocol someone in your position you know I'm gonna imagine people are coming up to you all the time asking for photos asking for your time asking for this what is from your perspective what's proper fan protocol if someone sees you out in the street what's the best way to have a positive situation
3: for you that works with both you and them Uh, oh, that's easy. Don't ask for a photo. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Don't ask for a photo. I'm not going to give you a photo. All right. And, and not only am I not going to give you a photo, it's going to vaguely tarnish the encounter. No. If you ask, don't
1: ask for a photo, <laughs> if you ask
3: for a photo, but just coming up and saying, I like your movies and like wanting to shake my hand and you know, and then I'll get your name and yeah. everything. And if you don't ask for a photo, I mean, depending on what the situation is, I might even engage you like a little bit longer. Yeah. If you ask for a photo, a glass wall comes up and I, yeah, you know, and I, I, try to say no in a nice way yeah. and everything, but I ain't, I ain't giving you a photo. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, but I mean, it, it. It rubs me the wrong way because it means, like, I don't think you even really want to meet me. You just want this. A piece of me. A piece of me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of
1: that out there, unfortunately. Yeah, Yeah. Um, I'm going to bring it back to Hollywood um, because I'm just curious. Uh, I I do stunt casting all the time. I like to have fun with what if this happened or that happened. What if early in your process, Brad and Leo came to you and said, Quentin, we've been talking about it amongst ourselves. We think we're a better fit if we switch roles. Would you have ever listened to them?
4: Uh,
3: not in this case. Okay. I mean, like I can imagine a, like I can imagine a situation you're doing true West or something like, Hey, l- let me play this guy. And let me play that guy. And right. I think there was a discussion like that with William Hurt and Rod, Rod Julia with a uh, uh, kiss of the spider woman or okay. something, but like, maybe should we should switch roles. Um. Uh, but no, I actually think they're cast really well. And for like, you know, is, uh, a uh, uh, uh Rick being uh, uh Leo being the actor mm. and and Cliff being the stunt guy mm. now there could be a couple of different there could be a, a, a couple of different alliterations of the casting where something like that could work but I don't think I, I uh but that would be more stunty in this case I actually think uh,
2: Leo is Perfect for the character he's playing, and Brad's perfect for the character he's playing. Gotcha. My wife cool. and I were in Japan recently, as I mentioned, and we went to Gompachi, which was yeah, yeah, awesome. And in there, you obviously walk in. My wife surprised me; she actually didn't tell me where we were going. She was like, "We're gonna go to this place. And I want you to walk in, and I want you to look at it and tell me where, what you notice." I walk in, and I immediately go, "Kill Bill." I, mean, <laughs> I mean, it was like the, the, the way it was designed. Yeah, and I was, I was, you know, I saw your photo in there, and I believe this is the story, and cut me if I'm wrong, that you went there to eat, and then kind of inspired the way that that scene ended up looking. If that, if that, if. if
3: It gave us, you know, I had my own design for the restaurant and that, the the own design for the restaurant kind of found its own way. I was kind of lost until I've kind of figured out what the restaurant would look like. The only thing about that place was, was, was the concept of the stairwell. Yes. All right. uh, uh, Surround, uh, surrounding it. All right. So that really uh, 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 locked us in that, that was, so that,
2: that's what we in particular took from that place. So the question for me, for you then is what are other places you've been to that have inspired a scene? in any of your movies, like a restaurant you ate at, wherever you went, that we can now look back at Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs or Ambassadors or Django and go, Quentin went to this place and it inspired the look of that moment.
3: Well, God, you know, I don't know if there's that many of them. I mean, you know, um, um, there was, a. I mean, I guess Jackrabbit Slims was pretty much inspired by a a crazy Planet Hollywood version of a, there was a, a, a series of 50s cafes in the 80s and 90s called Cafe 50s. And I think there's, I think there's only one left actually. Uh, I think a bit, I, I think. No, you I have think to the, go there. I think there's, there's one in Venice on Venice Boulevard. That was the first one, but there's still one uh, by the New Art. All right. On Santa Monica Boulevard. That's still, that, that one's still going, but there was a few of them all the way. And then, you know, there was Ed DeBevick's that was kind of this crazy Farrell's kind of place. All right. But uh, uh, Cafe 50s, so, so the idea though, but like I said, a, a planet Hollywood version of cafe fifties, I, uh, uh, in fact, it was funny because Harvey Weinstein kept wanting me to, uh, uh, do a real jackrabbit slims, which I want you to yeah. do yeah. a real yeah, Slims. the way they had like a uh, planet Hollywood. We'll get a couple of stars and we'll back it up and we'll open a bunch of uh, jackrabbit slims across the nation. It'll be fantastic. And I'm like, Harvey, I'm kind of making fun of these places. <laughs>
4: <laughs>
3: I remember I, I spent about like a page and a half describing uh, describing uh, Jackrabbit Slims to, you know, to the nth degree. And then after I got through describing everything about it, I go, this is
1: either the best or the worst of these places, depending <laughs> on your point of view. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I want to get to go back to casting for a little bit because I get really excited when a director uh, pulls... Same actor back repeatedly. And you have uh, people who are part of your ensemble, the Tim Roths, Michael yeah. Madsons. And I'm always excited, like, oh, how is he going to use them this time? Yeah. Sam, especially, right? Yeah. He always used Sam in many different ways. But there are other examples of actors that you've only worked with one time. Like yeah. I, I mentioned McTiernan's Die Hard. Bruce Willis, to me, was really important. So when yeah, Bruce yeah. Willis showed up in Pulp Fiction, I was like, oh, this could be great. Quinn's going to work with him a lot. Yeah, yeah. But then you don't. And I'm just curious, what's the difference between uh, the people that you bring back, yeah. you know, versus an actor who you— um, had one particular role for, do you ever try to get another role for a Bruce Willis or a Travolta or someone like that?
3: Well, look in the case of like, I, you know, uh, um, um, yeah, I think, you know, uh, Bruce, especially, I think really wanted to, uh, be in a few more movies and everything. And, uh, around the time of uh, Pulp Fiction, I thought that was going to be the case, you know, um, In every single situation, it's not a situation of, oh, well, this is an actor that I've worked with once and I've had my time with him and now that time is over. Uh, uh, But these are the guys that I like more and I want to bring them in. It it doesn't break down like that. It's it's about the characters. It's about the characters I'm writing. And especially at a certain point, once I got out of the 90s, once I was out of the 90s, I was less inclined— to fall in love with an actor and what I could do for an actor and what I could do with their persona and then take them into my world and fit it around them. So they would shine, which I think was kind of where I was coming from a lot in the nineties. Robert but, Forster. Yeah, yeah. But starting from the two, well, but Robert Forster actually is just such a perfect fit for Max Cherry. All right. Uh, um, but, um, so I think he would have won that role regardless. Gotcha. But from the 2000s on, I mean, I guess with the exception of Uma Thurman, because I completely built Kill Bill around Uma Thurman. But with the exception of Uma, I think it was a situation where from that point on, I started taking my characters more seriously. Oh, interesting. And so so some of the decisions I made in the 90s, I might not have made in the 2000s. All right, Because it was more about the character and finding the best actor for that character and not so much caring about the that actress persona and everything they'd done up until that and how I would make it work and, and the cause and effect that this could have on their career. It was more about, no, it's about my character. I got to get my character right and I have to bring my character to fruition with, via this actor. i got one chance at it. Here it is. And so in that instance, I have... Yet to write, I, I I think John Travolta is a fantastic actor. I think Bruce Willis is a fantastic ac- actor. I, Harvey Cattell is an amazing actor. I've, I've yet to write a character from the 2000s on that I thought that they were the perfect person to do it. I mean, frankly, the closest would have been Bruce because... I wrote bill for Warren Beatty and it ended up not working out. And then I cast David Carradine and then I kind of rewrote it for David Carradine. Bruce would have been my third choice. Wow. uh, Oh,
2: wow.
4: Yeah. And it would have been, You didn't rewrite it again.
3: Well, yeah, it would, uh, it would have been, uh, um, uh, uh, when I read the original version of of of, of Kill Bill, it's, it kind of cracks me up now because it, it's the Warren Beatty version. Okay, you know, and, and you know, and look, and look, the point of it is, is when you watch it, I want you to not think that I can't imagine anybody but David Carradine yeah. playing the role. I, I want you to think that, but when I look at that original version, you know, Bill was a little bit more of a evil James Bond type, okay, rather than the Bondian villain. Yeah, he was more a Bond, an evil Bond. All right, you know, and he kind of had this... He had a warm, Beatty kind of quality about him. And uh, frankly, to tell you the truth, I probably wouldn't have had to have rewritten it that much if I had cast Bruce in it. Bruce could have actually played that evil James Bond right. kind of character. And I would have just... Leaned into his personality maybe just a little bit more. I mean, a little more, a little less, little little less crystal, a little bit more cores. All right, you know, a little less champagne, a little more beer. Yeah, yeah. All right, which was, I think is part of Bruce's charm. Yeah, sure. All right, but that but oh, that would have been a very the, 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 a slight lean in. That would have been a slight lean in. I wonder
1: if it would the, have felt stunty, though. You know? I wonder if it would have felt stunty. I don't think so. No, I think I can, I can I can I can, I can, ima- I can
3: imagine Bruce and Uma
1: yeah. doing that Sitting scene that at couch. the
3: end. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine him being.
2: Delivering that Superman oh, dialogue, I just can't imagine anyone else doing that. Can you
1: imagine? Chris- oh, that's the idea. Yeah, man. Man. I did it right. Can you imagine Chris- <laughs> Christoph is playing Blofeld now? Is that is that hilarious that Christoph is playing Blofeld in the Bond franchise now?
3: I I didn't really care for Skyfall, but I dug Spectre. Really, I oh, Spectre we're on the really? opposite end yeah, of that that's one. That's so, so interesting. interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I really liked. I thought Skyfall was like. What, this whole fucking movie is ending at a shootout at a fucking cabin? This is a James Bond movie? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Mendez was what doing a little bit of is, Nolan what there. What the fuck is this? Yeah, like yeah. wanna be fucking straw dogs bullshit.
1: Right? <laughs>
3: and uh, like a fucking uh, farmer is helping him out? What the, this is like James fucking Bond? Yeah, no, Spectre was crap? like a laboratory
4: uh,
1: in a desert.
3: Yeah, Spectre. But from the opening action sequence Inspector Spectre on, it was like, yeah. okay, now this is a James Bond movie oh, again. Funny. That's
5: funny. So Kevin and I both interviewed a John Travolta separately earlier this summer, and he expressed to both of us his desire, his continued desire Uh to do something we talked about last time we all spoke, which is Vega Brothers. He he would
2: 100% do it if you wanted to do
5: it. And I made a joke last time we spoke about, because we had heard about the de-aging and Irishman and everything, and he kind of went like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. You've seen Irishman now. I'm curious as to this loaded question. Your thoughts on how that that de-aging process finally worked out, and would you ever reconsider using it for Vega Brothers?
3: I wouldn't re consider using it for Vega brothers. All right. Uh, um, Vega brothers is just not happening. No, I mean, okay. if I have, uh, it, it will be a graphic novel. If it was going to be anything, yeah, I would, read right. that. I would I'd, read that. Buy I'd buy it. I would read that. Can yeah, that. we do a 100%. mad magazine version? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'd
2: watch that. Let's read that. Well, by the way,
3: okay. That first Mad magazine, I haven't read this issue yet, but the first Mad magazine I thought was so funny. I wanted to film it. All right. I thought it was <laughs> like, I, I would have dramatized that. <laughs> That's All right. Funny. Uh, 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 no, I don't think I. W- I don't think I'd do that as my last movie. But uh, 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 but I could see it as, like I said, I could see it as a graphic novel or something like that. Yeah. So, what did you think of the de aging process of Irishman? Well, it, it was interesting. I, I hadn't. I didn't really have a problem with it. I saw it at the theaters. It's your number one movie of the year, right? Your favorite. Well, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Have you seen ha- Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? It's- <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's, well, like, yeah, that's, that's my, my number one movie one of the year. My, it's quite good. I, my mo- I don't. I don't count my movies when I'm <laughs> counting the best of the decade or the best of the year. All right. If I did, well, then
2: I stop counting. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the funny part about it, he's right. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but um, I. But it's interesting though because. Uh, I saw it at the movie theaters and I got used to it pretty quickly and then I kind of really didn't think about it. However, I watched it on television. I watched the first 20 minutes on television the other day. And I have to say that the aging process made more of an, uh, uh, I noticed it more. I noticed it more reduced to a smaller screen. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, as opposed to watching it on the big screen, you know, uh, by the time that the, uh, Stucky's- Scene was over. I wasn't yeah. thinking about it anymore. Here, I was kind of noticing it more. But I, I, but that was only the first. Young Pesci still looks good in it. You yeah, know? I think so too. Yeah, I, I think the so biggest thing
2: is when they move. Like, there's a scene where, like, and I love the movie. But when De Niro goes out that window and kicks that guy, it looks yeah. like a 80 year old person kicking yeah. somebody. Yeah, I'm
3: I'm but- not quite putting. Like, I'm not trying to see. Yeah, I'm not putting that under that kind of microscope. I'm like, I'm not trying to see how the trick is done. Yeah, I'm just kind of I'm, I'm 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 looking at it in general to be swept away with it right, rather right, than right. to put it under the microscope yeah that
1: cast is so incredible that when Kaitel shows up you're like oh my god fucking oh, Kaitel is in this too <laughs> oh yeah i know
3: and but like and i actually think in a in a movie jam-packed with hysterical lines yeah. i think harvey has the funniest one oh, in boy. there oh the, the whole thing like, you know, do you know who runs the uh Happy Day uh Oh yeah yeah the other laundromat? Uh, yeah, the, the the Happy Day cleaning service? Yeah. No, I don't. I do. Oh, who? No, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was like a who's on first kind yeah,
5: that's
4: of. Situation. Such a yeah. great delivery.
1: That's so great. Uh, uh, we gotta we gotta start to wrapping up this time. I'm gonna close this last out last with question. one more. Kevin got tattooed with Quentin's stuff, oh, so you get the last question. This is
2: something that I find interesting. So over the years, right yeah, I guess that that deserves <laughs> the right? Well, well thank you, it. Sean. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, True Romance is my favorite script you ever wrote. Not to say I think it's the best. I just think it's my favorite script you ever wrote. Everything you've ever written and all your movies are are some of my favorite movies of all time. So there's it's really kind of like picking your favorite child, to be honest. Um, But I still think in my mind, my favorite monologue you've ever written is Walken Hopper sequence in True Romance. I mean, that scene, the Chesterfield sound effect. I have a Chesterfield poster in my house because of that, because of that sequence. Gandolfini behind him. I mean, it's just that the whole scene is just it's just a masterpiece. And the way they deliver that dialogue is incredible. When I spoke to you at Django and I actually at Grindhouse, you said that you were writing a scene that you thought was going to top that moment. And that scene ended up being the opening of Inglorious Bastards. When I met you at Django, you said that day that you still think that the opening monologue of Bastards is your best monologue you've ever written. Can you talk to me about why you think that one? Is that still the case? And what are your thoughts on someone like me thinking that the true romance moment is just a particular favorite and why is bastards your favorite opening or well, model? Look,
3: look, it's, 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 Oh, well, I have no problem that you would like the inglorious, uh, the I true, all of them. Yeah, but, I, I, yeah. I, but I have no problem that you, know, like you put the true romance one at the top of the list. I mean, to me, it's like, a, a um, you know, when it comes to, you know, standalone scenes, all right, that work, but, but primarily work because of the dialogue and in, in inside of them. I mean cuz frankly to tell you the truth I actually think the spawn rant scene is just as good as either one of those two scenes, but it's not about the dialogue even though the dialogue is good it's in attention. it. Yeah. yeah. And that's but but that's, that's more that's also more directed. All right, that's a directed and acted scene. I I it's good in the it's good in the script when you read it, but it's not the stand alone that that the true romance one and the inglorious bastard one okay. is because it's not, it's not built around dialogue. You know, you can do, uh, uh, you know, kids in an acting class will be able to do the scene from inglorious bastards and, and the scene from uh, true romance for, from here to eternity. You can't really quite pull off the spawn rant scene as in, in an acting class in that same way, yeah. You know, so, but you know, so but you know, but there also is this aspect when it comes to those two scenes, the true romance and the inglorious bastards, is that they're standalone. You don't need the rest of the movie around it. They kind of work almost like little one act plays unto themselves, um, and so look, you know, so th- that the standalone quality. The fact that it completely exists on a white piece of paper, perfectly. Then it also exists in the movie version with you know the actors that played those roles, to a fairly well. All right, in both De- uh, Hopper and and uh, Walken and uh, uh, Denny Mouché and Christoph, and, and and literally, you know, the also the standalone quality that 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 like, you know, they work even independently of the movie surrounding them yeah. uh you know, I, you know i think they're you know if you're breaking my scenes down into hit records
2: i think they would be my two biggest well, hits. why do you prefer why, why do you personally love the bastards one the most and i'll end on that sorry
4: yeah uh, um
3: well i guess because well i think the well i think there's probably a couple reasons actually um it's longer. So I pulled it off more. I mean, I doubled, I doubled the time and, uh, and, and, and to a, I think a a greater effect rather than a lesser effect. Um, I think there's tension, absolute tension in the true romance scene, but I think there's more tension. I think there's more tension in the bastards. So it's actually, it's actually becomes a suspense sequence in a way that the true romance one doesn't. All right. It's still there. But this is like, but it's, it's full on suspense yeah. at a certain point. Sure, uh, I think there's a really, um, a neat trick to a dramatic reveal about the idea that it is just dialogue until we review the Jews underneath the floorboards, which happens midway through, which thus kicks the scene into a whole different area. You can have wraparound shots comes around and. Yeah, comes down, yeah, absolutely. And the fact that like a, a quarter, of it's, quarter of it is in a different language. That's true. You know, so I mean, you know, so I mean, you know, so I guess, and that also true romance already existed. So I had to top it and I knew I had never topped it. All right. So that was a goal to reach. Right. All right. You know, uh, 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 you know, uh, sports analogy, you have a magnificent game with a magnificent score and you're always trying to, you know, have another game where you reach that score with that type of team. All right. And that's what I, and that's what I did. So there was a, uh, you know, so it existed in a world where the true events already existed. And so to finally be able to get a leg up on it for the reasons I said.
1: Thank that's you. what I absolutely love about Mr. Tarantino yeah. is how you have that hunger still every single time yeah. of like to beat yourself. There's so many other directors that just coast on their laurels. Like I had that success. That's it. I'm going to live off of the, the fat of. In the blank, well, never well, do that. well, that's you'd why. Never well, that's, do why,
3: that. why uh, that's why I'm. That's why I'm kind of, you know, getting out while the it, getting's good, dropping the mic while they're. Like, it's still about, you know, yeah. mm, pushing it
1: forward. Yeah. Look what Marty just did.
2: Yeah.
3: Look uh-huh. what Marty just
1: did. Like, you could do, do that. Look, I will. Yeah, uh, but please
2: you know, keep making. Movies. But look here's <laughs> please. Look here's for tattoos. But here,
4: <laughs> if for that alone, we're gonna keep change, the
2: tattoo business a lot
4: That might
1: parody. change my
3: mind. Yeah. You
1: know?
4: <laughs> That's
5: the reason. You should uh, to see where they end up, actually.
1: <laughs> this uh, has been such an incredible experience. Um, it's an understatement to say how happy we were to have you back on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. The, the,
3: and to do it proper. And an extended version. An extended right version. The director's
1: cut. We're going to call this one. Volume one and volume two. Yeah. So it's thank one you. It's movie. Me. You know it's one movie. <laughs> Stop Yeah, it. don't Stop. cut it in no.
3: half. Oh. Yeah.
2: Right. One movie and it all will always I be one much. movie. Quentin, <laughs> <laughs> I want to see the whole Bloody Affair eventually in my lifetime. I'm going to watch that in 35 in full. I always... We have,
3: we show it every couple of years at the New, the New Beverly. I've
2: never seen it. Uh, we, we've we shown it every,
1: every I always watch the DVDs back to doing,
2: back yeah. on yeah. purpose. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll quickly put them in and
3: try to watch it as <laughs> one movie. All right, well, thank all you right.
1: again, Quentin, for joining. An honor. My pleasure.
3: Thank my you, pre- you. Oh, the, and the the full, uh, whole Bloody Affair has the all colored uh Japanese section. Right. Are we going to get a Blu ray of that?
4: Uh, they, uh, they
3: go, you gotta go in the New Beverly
2: <laughs> <laughs> and on that note we're done and we, drop we the dropped mic. the mic yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow.
1: naturally we have to thank uh, our amazing friends at Sony who were able to uh, bring Quentin back around he's obviously doing press for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood which is doing very very well on the but not that circuit. much press uh, no, 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 no. He isn't at all. And and I love that in the course of our conversation, he mentions that podcasts are a, yeah. a good format for him because it allows him to sit back, be comfortable. Uh, Which is a
5: double-edged sword for me because as a, as a podcaster, I go, ooh, cool. But as someone who also still does TV junkets, I think, oh, that sucks. <laughs> right. That's why we have both, though.
2: Yeah. Very the true. story
1: of how this came together is really one for the ages, and I'm trying to decide where to even begin. I think we just have to flash forward to. We got to tell you guys that this interview happened in New York City on a Saturday, and it was confirmed uh, Thursday evening, and we had to then get ourselves to New York City to make it happen, which is great. We were always prepared to jump uh, the minute he was ready to go. We were thinking it was going to be Monday and that we'd have a little bit more time, and then when we found out it was going to be Saturday. We just literally dropped everything that we were doing and started moving mountains. However, <laughs> uh, you can only do so much. And when we all landed in New York uh, with plenty of time, very ca- we, we planned to get there uh, early in the morning. We were going to prep our questions. We all wrote up our own questions, but we love to have – we've talked about geek out dinners before. This was going to be a geek out breakfast, lunch kind of thing where we would at least take the – 40 to 50 questions we sort of scratched out and put them into an order that made sense. However, when we landed, we received a text message from Gabe that said, there's a delay. It's not good. And uh, he was not exaggerating (laughs) because Gabe had all of our uh, recording equipment. He got it in St. Louis and was going to be bringing it to New York City with him. And uh, was due to land at like eleven thirty. It would. There was no weather, no issues like that. It was a mechanical problem. Gabe is plane. really good at making himself inexpendable. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, that led the three of us in New York to uh, go into panic mode. Of we have to try to find equipment, and but I also want to throw this to Kevin really fastly because Kevin is a wizard when it comes to booking a flight, because he actually managed to get Gabe onto an earlier flight on a United Airlines plane that had one seat <laughs> left and Kevin sprung into action yeah. and secured that seat. It was, it was something that uh, I stood in, in Newark airport watching Kevin work the phones. And I was, uh, I was dumbfounded at how good you are at this.
2: Well, that was, well, thank you. And that was the craziest part is that, as Sean mentioned, we all flew ourselves to New York. Um, so Sean and I landed in Newark together. And we are at my gate and I'm holding, Sean goes to get me a coffee, which I didn't drink. I threw away. I'll tell that story in a second. Um,
4: <laughs> um,
2: I sure but, forgot uh, that. Yeah. yeah. So.
5: Uh, what do you mean? So, that was the first thing you said when I saw you in New York was, you <laughs> know, Kevin threw away the coffee. For him. Right, and, I'll,
2: and I'll give an explanation. There's a lot
1: still to go. Yeah. So I get,
2: I get, I get, I land. My phone's been off the 45 minutes flight from DC to Newark. And I land to a, a ton of texts that Gabe's not going to make it. We have no audio equipment. I mean, this is a huge problem because we're getting ready to do a 90-minute interview with Quentin Tarantino, and we have nothing to record on but our phones unless Gabe gets there. And so it's not even just Gabe having the audio equipment. I just want Gabe in the room with us when we record because that's the show. Um, It doesn't feel right when Gabe's not with us. So my thought was Gabe doesn't have status on the airline, and so we have to figure out a way to get him on a flight. So I essentially call United with my status, and I get Gabe on the phone in a three-way call, and Gabe is all ready to go. There's credit card information all ready to go, and we book Gabe a flight to land at 1.30. Gabe's flight, new flight, is going to land at 1.30 p.m. Keep in mind, our interview with Quentin Tarantino was scheduled for 3 p.m. We then later find out the interview's being moved to 2 p.m., which... Doesn't give Gabe any time at all to get from Newark to the hotel, set up his equipment and get the interview rolling. So essentially, we're in this position now where we are hoping that Gabe will land and get there in time. But we don't have audio equipment to do a two o'clock interview. We just don't. So Gabe starts calling around. Jake, we're all we're all kind of panicking but remember at the same time as Sean mentioned we all had to work on our questions we we had them we had them emailed we had lists we were ready to go but Jake and I and Sean we all like to have an order of what we're doing we want to know what we're asking but we did not have the luxury of doing that this time we just kind of threw questions out in email and then we quickly before the interview started ordered them um, after we got our equipment here's the craziest thing we essentially call around. Sean and I are in an Uber. I'm calling places in Jersey, Brooklyn. And this is the day of. Nobody has equipment. Nobody has recording equipment. And then I randomly call Guitar Center because Gabe mentioned Guitar Center. Guy picks up the phone. His name is Bruce. And I and I use Quentin Tarantino's name to say, we have an interview with Quentin Tarantino today. And we need help. <laughs> we don't have any equipment. The guy proceeds to
5: tell us. Everyone in New York knew that we had an interview with Quentin Tarantino on Saturday.
2: And- Every audio shop knew that. Um, and Gabe, I, I want you to chime in here too, because we, I, I, this guy picks up the phone and I tell him we're interviewing Quentin Tarantino and he goes, that's really weird because I actually produced a song on the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. And he goes on to tell this story about going to the Viper Room years ago and his band was playing there and Quentin was there and I don't remember the exact details of it, but it was a crazy story. So anyways, we go to Guitar Center. <laughs> and all three of us are in Guitar Center going through microphones, equipment, and eventually they give us this, this gear. And we have to learn it. We have to learn how to operate it with four mic channels on GarageBand. Stuff we have no idea what we're doing. Which obviously gives us a deeper appreciation for what Gabe does in the show. But there is a visual that I'll never get out of my mind of Jake, Sean, and myself behind a Guitar Center cash register counter testing microphones and people pretending to be tarantino to test the audio <laughs> remember the one of one of bruce's co-workers Aaron. Pretend, Aaron. yeah he was tarantino for us and we're all like and gabe is in the air we don't know what's going on we, we 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 just hope he'll land and the idea would be that he would just sneak into the room and then possibly sit down with our equipment that we have set yeah, up because at this own. point
5: gabe has no idea that the interview Yes, it's going to take place 30 yeah. minutes. after Gabe, You're in
2: the air. So what I, I want to pause my story here and go to you because you've taken off um, and we're tracking your flight to land at one thirty for a right. two o'clock interview. And at, at, what's going through your mind at this point
6: uh, on the flight while I'm flying? Oh, while I'm flying, it's bliss. I'm like, oh, I'm uh, I'm on a flight. We're good to go.
2: You don't know the interview's been moved to two o'clock. No,
6: no, no. You don't no, know no. any yeah. of this. And it was, uh, hello. To give context. Hi. Uh, I'm filling in for Sean because Sean had a a phone call he had to take, so now I'm here. But uh, but yeah, no, I didn't know I didn't know anything about it. I mean, we I was in the the flight was enough stress. I thought we were all good. Uh, and landing and be, and realizing that it was supposed to be in 30 minutes was uh kind of the worst thing that could have happened <laughs> after all that we went through that morning of just trying to get there. So, so yeah, no, I, as far as the flight was concerned, I was just ready to get there and right. I was, I was already bummed that I didn't get there early enough for us all to kind of, cause we all usually work on the questions. We talk about order, we talk about, right, we kind of sync up just in general about what, what we want to get from these interviews, um, and, and how we want to, and we can get very specific sometimes about how we want to do stuff, but we're just, that's the way we are. We're just very particular. Yeah. Um, so it was for us, not only was it a last minute book, but it was a last minute, like everything, everything about it got condensed uh because of because of travel uh, yeah which is which is never fun so
2: jake what Tell, <laughs> tell the audience what happened. So we, we leave Guitar Center. We, you Jake See, my up. my
5: perception of Guitar Center was, because I know nothing about the technical side of thing, which only builds upon my respect for what Gabe does for this show. So, so Kevin, I don't know if you remember this, but I pieced out pretty early into the technical talk <laughs> right. and found myself by the cowbells, <laughs> and I was playing with all the different cowbells. So I would, like, look over, and you and Bruce would be having this deep technical talk. And Bruce was getting Shawn's mad. Sean's on the phone, and Bruce is getting mad because he's I'm trying to listening. tell Kevin what to do, and Kevin's not listening. And so I thought, "Oh look, cowbells!" So that's what I did for about an hour. Was playing, and I kept coming over. And every every, I don't know if you remember. Every five minutes, I'd come over and like show you a different weird musical instrument. I'd yeah. be like, "Look, maracas!" And then I'd walk <laughs> away, and then I'd come back, and I'd be like, "Look, a triangle!" Right. And I kept coming back with different. And you did not find it nearly well, as we were as all I did. freaking um, out. I was feeling pretty good. I had my cowbell. <laughs> uh, we get back to the hotel and uh, we just start. Te- I, I, at that point, we're we're settling in and we're getting ready, and it's a technical thing. And, and the big question becomes whether or not
2: Gabe's going to make it. Right. And Jake, but, but and Jake's anxiety comes from not having the order of our questions. Yeah, because I mean, no, because in, listen, it,
5: like we all knew that we had great questions, but you, the it, it, there's a difference between ha- having three people. With a bunch of good questions and having them flow, right? And we at no point did we have a chance to sit down because we also like to each take turns asking questions. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to shortchange anyone. We don't want anyone to walk out of there thinking, "Well, I didn't get to ask anything." Right? Um, So we try to make it so that at best we each take turns asking questions, but they're not. We're not jumping all over the place and asking a bunch of random stuff. That one kind of flows into the other. And, and that's easy to do once we can kind of sit down and, and, and you know, take 20, 30 minutes and, and discuss what it is that we all had come up with. But it does take that process. Yeah. It does take that moment where I go, well, I want to ask this. Oh, you're asking that? That's cool. My question references something you're asking. Yeah. So why don't you ask that first? And then I'll follow it up with my question. Yeah. It, it's a simple conversation, but it's a conversation that needs to be had. And I was getting nervous because the, the, the minutes were ticking by <laughs> And we and you want to seem professional. We were in supposed to be at a Tino. lunch going over this. Like that that, that we, were, yes. we were supposed to be landed, no stress. And the, and the entire like 36 hours leading up to this interview, what did I say? All I want is our freaking lunch yeah. to sit down and go over our questions. And the joke was the only thing that was gonna, our big joke like <laughs> Kevin doing the whole if it if it happens Run. thing. <laughs> we were saying, "Well, even if the interview doesn't happen, at least we'll have our
2: lunch." <laughs> Guess what didn't happen? The lunch. Our lunch. <laughs> And so to, and to, to Jake's point, we did get to sit down very quickly. Um, so I, I set up all the audio equipment. I got everything rolling while we went through the questions. And, like for, and a great example of what Jake's referring to, a great example of what Jake's talking about is the fatherhood question. Because if you look at the arc of that question, I ask it and then Jake follows up with his and then Sean follows up with his. If we didn't have the discussion of where those questions were going to go, that fatherhood moment would not have flowed the way it did. So Jake's very important point about preparation, that's how that stuff works. So then we get a text from Sony that says, oh, now it's going to be 2.30. So then then we start having very detailed discussions about what we're going to do if Gabe can get here before Tarantino walks through that door. So then there's arguments of, do we let Gabe set his equipment up? take down our equipment? What if he walks right. in when Tarantino walks in? Then what do we do? And the consensus was, we wanna, I, we'd want to. rather have Gabe run this on his equipment with his own stuff and while there. But we didn't know that was going to be the case. So we had this rig right, set right, up. Right. So then Gabe's texting us. He's landed. The clock is ticking down. It's like 2.20. And Gabe texts the group, And then I'll let Gabe take it from here. But he was five blocks away sitting in horrible New York traffic.
6: Yeah. Well, ever since I landed, I was trying to – kind of we all kind of work together on a lot of things. But that's usually my role is you guys can focus on what you're focusing on. And I can kind of solve our technical problems, whether it's that, whether it's travel, whether it's whatever. And so I'm sitting here trying to give you guys a list of, you know, okay, if I get here at this time, this is what we'll do. If I get here at this time, this is what we'll do. If I'm not there at all and I die in a car crash (laughs) – peace have fun (laughs) enjoy it um but yeah so i'm in an uber going okay it says it's going to take this long and it's a saturday traffic in new york and we're just trying to figure that out until i get about like three blocks away and i can see on the map how far away it is and i can see how much traffic is and i'm like all right this is this is a movie moment and i'm just going to embrace it and i'm going to go with it and i say i'll just get out here and i grab like i don't know maybe like 35, 40 pounds worth of, uh, 35 pounds <laughs> worth of gear that I have. And I'm like sprinting through to get to this hotel. I'm out of breath. I'm in the lobby and I'm like, I'm supposed to be, I'm on the third floor. Of the-.
4: <laughs> I know like, Qu- oh, Tarantino.
6: Yeah. I just say that. And she's like, oh, you're the audio person. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, and They're then like, I am like, My name is Gabe. Yeah. I didn't care that she could have
2: called me, whatever, but it worked out. But, but, it's, but, but, it's but Gabe queasy... walks in two minutes before Tarantino. Two minutes. Two minutes. Two I'm minutes. still
6: plugging in audio cables as he's like hey guys as you guys are like shaking hands and stuff I'm like check 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 1 2 <laughs> I'm trying to make sure everything works so that when we hit start it's not a clusterfuck and, essentially And Tarantino um,
2: appreciated it too cuz like he was a yeah, he yeah, was yeah, he yeah. was aware of what Gabe had just done, like the running thing. And like right. the beauty of what ended up happening in that moment was we we bought Casamigos Margaritas again, like we did in our first interview. So the time it took Tarantino to go over to the area and make himself a Casamigos Margarita right. was the perfect timing for Gabe to get everything checked out. So basically all that Guitar Center equipment just got shoved aside after all that work we did. And Gabe yeah, gets yeah. his stuff in and then we roll. And right, it was, and, and, and that was the and crazy give, part. Yeah,
6: and I do want to give. We we talk a lot about the one well, we're talking about our behind the scenes stuff, but we all, a big part of the show is talking about behind the scenes of like I don't want to say Hollywood, but behind how that system works and PR in general. And I don't want people to think that like it was do or die. Like if we weren't ready to go, they were just going to leave us. Right. But we're all very one. We like to be prepared. We like to we like to give them nothing to worry about on our end, so that we can just go with the flow. And that's what we're operating from. Tarantino when he got there and and his people and everybody they were
2: he would have been fine waiting five minutes if he they were totally yeah, like they yeah. were like
6: yeah they he even said like oh just take your time like no worries. he was laughing at the story but about us we didn't want to
2: waste his time
6: absolutely yeah. absolutely so he, they would they were I don't want people to think that they were like you know sitting there tapping their watches waiting for it they were they were super um, accommodating as far as needing a little bit extra time to just make sure everything was right because little did we know not only were we going to be sitting there for ninety minutes but he was going to want to keep going yeah and it ended up being you know. Over two hours, uh, and it's and it takes some. It takes time to make sure everything's working, so that something doesn't break uh, over the course of two
2: And, hours. and, and to Gabe, and to Jake's point, and to Gabe's point, Gabe is there as a producer, but he's also there to limit our concerns about the equipment we're using. Right? So, um, yeah, it, the mentality
6: tracking time and all that kind yeah, of stuff. The, you guys can just be in the moment. Right? The
2: mentality yeah. of Gabe sitting there and running his own equipment took my mind because if he wasn't there I would have been looking over at this computer that I operated through the guitar center equipment the whole time and I wouldn't have been present in the conversation and like Tarantino I, I want to say thank you to him if if he ever listens to this because not only did he give us 90 minutes but at the 90 minute mark he said he wanted to keep going and we just and and and, and respectfully each one of us said you don't have to we don't want to take advantage of your time but you're more than welcome to stay. And whatever audio you're going to hear from this interview, there was so much more at the end of it that was so special to us um, that I I think we'll eventually talk about at some point. But once the interview ended, we actually sat in that room, I don't want to exaggerate, maybe for another 20 minutes or so, talking to Tarantino about non-Tarantino things, Um, uh, specifically his top 10 of the decade, which which i we won't reveal cuz we'll let him reveal that but it's he gave us his first 5 and they're really cool it's
6: kind of mind it's kind of mind blowing yeah wait
2: the, the his top 5 of the 2000s of i'm sorry of the decade are going to blow your mind <laughs> like they're very very you would interesting. N- you would they're never interesting, imagine just just the fact
5: that he told us something and we can go like you know we're going to keep that. Like we're not going to tell you that's his secret. Yeah. We'll let, we'll let him tell you the fact we're that so we cool. know something yeah. about Quentin Tarantino yeah. that we'll yeah. let him tell you is uh, is pretty crazy to
2: me. But I find it, I do find it interesting though, how easily he gave us that information. Um, and, and it was interesting cause we're, we're just standing there and Gabe's packing up and, you know, um, thank you to Shannon. Who's his amazing producer who sat through the interview with us, who's actually responsible for the amazing Blu-ray you're seeing for, for Hollywood. Um, uh, and I think that it was just such a cool thing to we're off record and we're just hanging out and just talking movies. And we got into the wildest discussions. Randomly, we were on William Shatner for like 10 minutes and we were like going through these like loopholes of conversations. Um, but we just wanted to share the behind the scenes experience of this because it it, it meant a lot to us. We're not trying to sit here and say, you know, we're the greatest. We're you know, we're not we're not trying to pat ourselves in the back. We're just giving you what it was like for us on that day. Cause I feel like it, it will add an interesting context to the what you just heard. Um, and that's why we wanted to explain it.
1: Okay, I'm back. I'm joining the conversation, the the Tarantino Love Fest. And I'm gonna give you just my quick perspective on this because it's so bizarre that I need to get it on record so that it exists someplace. Yeah. But I texted this to the guys after the fact, and and naturally the text chain that we um, live in, essentially, uh, was filled. Ke- I, Kevin made a joke where he essentially said, did I just pay for Wi-Fi on my flight home so I could just keep talking about this I, interview? No, I
2: actually did. I paid $8.99 for 25 minutes of Wi-Fi <laughs> just so we can keep talking after I scarfed down but, an amazing Wendy's burger. They're not they're not, not an advertiser they, on the show, by the way.
1: <laughs> the next day, they should be, though. They should be. Uh, the next day, as I tried to process this, I got hit by something by a feeling that is my honest reaction to this of just I I honestly think Quentin is friends with us like I think that he's <laughs> friends with us and and to the point where if if we were to bump into him at the Critics Choice uh, uh awards of which we we're have all, to
5: collectively go over there to him together
1: well and but I also think that like okay so we've had these conversations with certain filmmakers where the three of us have said like can we approach him do you think we can get a picture how is it going to work out I, I don't have that anymore with Quentin, right? I honestly feel like if we saw him someplace, we would be going up to him to catch up with him as a as a friend. Like I legitimately feel and I could be completely deluded, he might not think this at Well, because remember
5: I said the next day I said like and this is going to sound strange, but we're fortunate enough all of us to have multiple pictures with Quentin and after the comment that he that he made in in the podcast I, I'm done asking Quentin Tarantino for pictures. Like, like yeah. if we were to go up to That's him to in him. a couple of weeks the yeah, like, yeah. I think we would all go say hello. Hey, good to see you. Congratulations. Have a
1: great night. And I think we would all just walk away. I and and again, maybe I'm putting myself on a pedestal where I don't belong, but he was so unbelievably cool. And I'm sure you guys probably touched on this. The fact that he scheduled us last because he knew that we would be a hang you know, and then didn't want to have anything Actually, no, don't mention that. I don't think we, we didn't d- mention oh, that, we no, didn't about that? that. He told us, he so told when, us.
2: Yeah, let Sean tell the yeah. story. This is
1: cool. He did some other press that day, obviously. Uh, he was in New York. He did an, a couple other podcasts um, or another podcast. I know he was doing a few other interviews, but he told us that he specifically scheduled us last in his day um, and that he had nothing else to do for the evening. And he said he did that specifically because he knew that he would want to spend more time with us. And I had said that to the guys at one point, Maybe I said it to Gabe. I forget who I said it to. I was like, I kind of get the impression that if it's going really well, he's going to want to stick around, you know, because I, I do think the first time we interviewed him when it ended, he didn't necessarily want to leave. I think he was enjoying himself. I think he really liked the questions that we asked. And I don't know if you guys mentioned this uh, earlier, but at the 90 minute mark when he got up to take a bath and break. And at that point, you know, I had seen the the, the time that we were at. And I essentially said to him, I was like, Quentin, you're, you're kind of done. You know, like we're at 90 minutes.
2: And, and Quentin actually even said to us, oh, I saw your producer counting us down. I actually liked the behind the scenes. Remember he said that he goes, I was, I was watching Gabe or your producer. I was, I was watching him with his 10 minute sign. He was fully (laughs) aware we were done. And to Sean's point. Now, Gabe point, didn't
1: rap Quentin, I will say that. <laughs> Gabe, Gabe did not give Quentin the rap sign, which is very kind of him. Right. And But Quentin said, uh, no, no, man, uh, this is great. I'm having a total blast. And, uh, you know, do you want to go, like, 20 or 30 more minutes? Like, we can do, like, 20 or 30 more. And the funny part is, and I'm not sure if you guys mentioned this, at, at the hour mark, Gabe tapped my leg uh, and pointed at the clock and was like, you know, we've done an hour so far. And I looked at the sheet. We had <laughs> I had three sheets of paper in front of me. Uh, filled with questions of the order that we were potentially going to go in. We had done about seven of them. Yep. <laughs> and there was about 30 more to go yeah. and we were an hour into our 90-minute We 90 had 38
2: questions written in. By the way, I'll, I'll tease this now. I kept the paper um, of our order. I did so too. So once, yeah. and I, I actually kept Jake's too because Jake left his on the table. So I grabbed Jake's and I grabbed mine so we can have them forever. Um, and I'm, I think after the interview is released, we should tweet out the question list so people can see what we got to and what we didn't get to because it was 38 questions every one of them was listed the order we went in and for people who may want to listen to the interview again or are super fans of our show it could be a fun way to listen to it again if you want to go through our questions and see our sheet um and because at one point during the interview before the interview started quentin actually said do you mind asking me about something so i actually wrote oh, yeah. i wrote mad T- the mad magazine on my sheet of paper like in the middle of all these questions we had written and it was just r- literally just right there as mad just to make sure we got to it um but it, so. it's it's cra- it's crazy how little we got to with, with much, how much time we had because that it was a conversation we just we're not patting ourselves on the back we're just saying that we were It didn't feel like an interview for us. Um, We were just talking. And
1: and I want to say this. I, I think I speak for all three of us when I mentioned that we had a little trepidation with this one in that the first interview went so well. Yeah. And I think Kevin said this once. He's like, I just don't want this one to not go as well as that. Like, I want my experience with him to be so good. Right. And then this one like just floored it, floored yes. it. And so, you know, the takeaway people always say, like, don't meet your heroes, right? Like it's, it, you're setting yourself up for potential disappointment. Yep. But both of these experiences with Quentin, as a result of this show and you guys listening to us and you guys encouraging us to go after filmmakers, uh, have been two of the most amazing, uh, interview experiences I've ever had, uh, at the first one. And someone also pointed this out too. For the first one, we showed up in our suits and we looked like reservoir dogs and it was, a, it was an interview. You know, we were very prepared. We had everything we wanted to get through with Quentin. It was structured. He gave great answers. This one was a hang. And we were all dressed casually. And it was just, and Quentin, I think Quentin approached it knowing that. He's like, this isn't an interview. It's a conversation. And I hope it comes across. I hope it came across that way as you guys listen to it. I feel that it was really a conversation, and he approached it that way, too. And for that reason, I think that it has the vibe that it does. Sean,
2: did you like Volume 1 or Volume 2 better of our interviews?
1: (laughs) Well, Volume 1 is much better. It's one interview. (laughs) It's one interview. I like that we dabbled in that a little bit at the end, and he still was like, don't you cut it in half. Don't cut it in half. Uh, So I hope you guys enjoyed the behind the scenes story uh, of what is gotta be, I mean, this has to be the best interview real Blunt's ever done. Is it right? It's, the, what top it's it?
2: the greatest moment for me in my career to be a part of this. And this is the last thing I will say, because this means the world to me. And I know Jake does this and I'm sure Sean did this. And I'm sure Gabe did this. I probably stopped t- uh. close to 10 or 11 times during the interview. And I stared at Quentin's face and I said, I am sitting across from my hero. My I, I and, and it's hard to do that in an interview, especially when you have four minutes. But to sit there and actually look at him and actually yeah. have the and have that moment where you go, he's right there talking <laughs> to me about movies. Yeah. What yeah. is happening right now? Right. That's all I that, that I yeah. had about 10 of those moments during the interview. And I'm sure Jake did. I'm sure you, Sean did. You got I did that on my wedding day, by the way. It's the only other time I ever did that. I think I remember on my Quentin, wedding. Was that your wedding day? No, but on my wedding day, I stopped and I said <laughs> to Lauren, we're getting married right now. This is really cool. That's how that's that amazing. this moment is like near my wedding day. That's, that's how big of a deal this was for me.
1: Personally. I love it. Let us know what you guys thought of the interview. Please go to social media, uh, share your insights with Quentin and all the things that he, that he shared with us. Send us emails, blend at cinemablend.com. Uh, we just want to hear your feedback. Naturally, we're not going to get two plus hours with all of our cinematic right. icons. Um, but, you know, uh, we're hoping that this is a springboard uh, to get some other amazing filmmakers on the Real Blend podcast because you guys have been so supportive uh, and we are so appreciative of the fact that you guys listen to the show and, and allow us to do this. So thank you guys so much for listening to our extended interview with Quentin Tarantino. We were so excited to bring it to you guys. We hope you guys liked it. We'll be back next week with a traditional, uh, episode of the Real Blend Podcast as we build up to the live one that we're recording in Washington, D.C. For episode number 100. So until then... Dunkirk! Dunkirk! Douglas. Dunkirk.